flow is good, the hoe is good, the show is good, you know it's grub. Cool as me out front, that can't cool, still can't fuck, you know it's love. Clean as tight, no head and shoulders, hoe, you know it's grub. Shout out to my kid folk, just got on that Coca Cola scrub. Watch my profile and my go kart, this might get away as fuck. In my hood, we call it book, fuck by what you think of me. All my hoes be nice and dance, all she want is chicken grease, all you know is what your man It's September 17th. 2016, and this is the third episode of Psychology is Dead. I'm your host, Quentin Moody, and this week's installment is probably the best titled episode of Psychology is Dead so far. We've had the art of escalation and commitment, and we've had the art of the tournament, and this episode is titled The Art of Death, and with me on this journey is going to be my good friend, my long-time personal companion from SES, Brock. Brock, how are you? Uh, not too bad. I'm, I'm a little nervous because we're going to be talking about death matches, something that's uh, very near and dear to my heart, and I want to make sure that I represent it well. And uh, I, I don't know. I'm kind of <laughs> I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about this, and I'm a little nervous all the same. But I think I'm, I think I'm doing okay. I'm glad to be here with you, Quentin. I'm. I think it's funny that you said this week's episode of Psychology is Dead because it has been many weeks since the last episode, and that's all my fault. <laughs> yeah, I think it's been like God, maybe a month since it's. The... It's been since SCI. Yeah, so that a month. footage came out. So yeah, so about a month. Yeah. Yeah. So this was planned for a while. Like you were always planned to be like the third guest, yep. and like yeah. I, I didn't like exactly know what we were going to talk about. And then just, like, random conversations in the Slack chat was like, oh, we should do one about death matches. Yeah. Like, from the first day that I joined Wrestling With Words, I was publicly, like, the deathmatch guy. And I think on the first day that I joined that Slack chat, people were talking about Necro Butcher. And I was, like, coming to his defense after people were like, oh, he's sloppy, he's not, I don't know, I don't know why people like him. And and since then, I've, I've really, in a lot of ways, become, like, the deathmatch guy here at Wrestling With Words. I just want to go on record and say I did not say Necro Butcher was sloppy. <laughs> I'm not sure who it was, yeah. <laughs> I did not disparage the name of Necro Butcher, just so people don't blame me for it. But, as you said, this episode is focusing on death matches, the psychology the psychology in death matches, obviously, the personas, the a whole bunch of stuff and nuances that, on the surface, really may not be noticeable and death mm-hmm. matches, and you know, for me, you know, I'm on record as not being the biggest fan of death matches, or not exactly not being a fan, but not understanding certain stuff, and for good reason. Yeah, and this the purpose of this episode was to help me understand why certain things in death matches make sense, why death matches have their own psychology and nuance to them. And there was no better person I could think of to do the show than you. And I guess what I want to lead off with is, personally, how did you get so into deathmatch culture? Well, before anything, um, I I want to put out a bit of a trigger warning uh, to all the listeners out there. Because, obviously, with this discussion on deathmatches, we're going to be talking about things that are very violent, uh, very unappetizing, uh, sometimes straight-up disgusting and if you're if you don't think you're going to be down with discussion of blood and cuts and just general gore or if you're having a bad day and you don't want to hear about 
you know, a couple people beating the absolute dog shit out of each other, maybe skip this one. I'm not necessarily trying to turn you off from listening to me discuss this thing that I love so much, but if this isn't going to be appetizing to you, I don't want to force you through it. But you're asking a question on how uh, how exactly I got into death matches, and I suppose that sort of ties into how I got into wrestling in general. I got into wrestling kind of late in life. Uh, I was... I want to say I was about 14 years old. My brother, my little brother, had been into wrestling for several years already, um, mostly just WWE stuff. And one day on Christmas Day 2007, he got a DVD copy of No Way Out 2007, which I I will defend as a good show. <laughs> maybe maybe just for nostalgic reasons, but like I really enjoy that show. But he got a, a DVD copy of No Way Out 2007, and he was like, "Hey, Brock, could you you want to watch this with me?" And and, and in an instance of brotherly love, one of maybe five that I've ever shown to my little brother, um, <laughs> I, uh, I sat down with him and I watched No Way Out 2007. And after years of lambasting him and making fun of him in very, in very, um, very gross teenage ways that a lot of, I think, teenage boys make fun of wrestling, uh, after years of doing that, my eyes were opened up and I was like, holy shit, I really like wrestling. And so from there, um, we lived about a block away from the public library, which is where I spent, like, every bit of my life that wasn't in school or at church. I was at the public library, like, watching wrestling. Uh, I spent the next couple of weeks just pouring over all the WWE and WCW that I could. And after I did that, I was like, well, what else is out there? And so I scour YouTube and I scour Wikipedia and I find, like, ECW and I find Japan and I start... I start watching ROH and I start watching PWG and I'm like, Oh, this is, this is really great. And then I find out that some of my friends at school already love wrestling and they're actually backyard wrestlers. And that's how I got into backyard wrestling, which is a whole, whole other discussion. Um, and, and so for a couple of weeks, I'm just riding high here. And then sometime in, I believe February of 2008, as I'm on YouTube, I find this video, this music video of uh, CZW that someone had made and it was set to fear of the dark by iron maiden and it's a it's a solid music video you can find a very shitty quality like a low bitrate uh version up on youtube and if you ask for the link i can send it to you um i watched this like seven minute video that just disgusted me like i was watching people go through fire and get cut open with light tubes and bleed everywhere i was watching guys take like bowling balls to the crotch like it turned me off so much and i went to school the next day and i told my friends and i was like i, I saw this video of this like czw ultraviolent deathmatch stuff and it was just so gross and they were like yeah i we kind of like it actually and i was like oh <laughs> okay <laughs> and so i went back to it and i i revisit it and i i look at other deathmatch things and i slowly just was enamored with it and fell in love with czw specifically but deathmatches in general uh, Danny Havoc, I've I've gone on record before. Danny Havoc was my first favorite wrestler in the world, and I mean, since then it's just been it's been nothing but a love affair. And this may surprise you and some of the some of the people listening, but I think the first time I ever heard of CZW may have been when I was like in elementary school. Really? <laughs> yeah, like you really? got into wrestling early then? Oh God, I was into wrestling like. God, since I can remember. <laughs> when most people do it, yeah, yeah. I got into it, I got into it, like, real late in life, I think. Yeah, so, like, I heard, like, one of my closest friends 
like say something about CZW and I'm like I don't know what that is and then like when I was young I saw you know one of those infamous CZW MVs that are on YouTube and obviously highlights of past Cage of Deaths or Tournament yeah. of Deaths and going through fire and people doing like fucking 450 kicks to the floor like it's like the most insane shit ever like and I never got into CCW but it's one of the companies like first indie companies that I remembered you know at that young yeah like people people kind of you know uh, look down upon CCW for you know a couple pretty good reasons but people tend to forget that like they were sort of huge in the early 2000s and like were not necessarily neck and neck with ROH but were like they were just about as big as ROH at the time yeah and that's why, like, even if I'm not the biggest fan of the promotion, if you understand the history of CZW and what they meant mm-hmm. to the indie wrestling boom, there's, like, no way I would ever discredit them. Totally. And there's a question that like, I've just been... It's been on my mind for a few weeks, like, in the lead-up to this show. And it's something that I'm not sure many people have talked about. But obviously there was extreme wrestling in the 90s. If you want to talk about names like a Cactus Jack or a Sabu going over to Japan and doing things, you can talk about FMW like we will later. Mm-hmm. Or you, we can go back to as early as the 70s and 80s with guys like Abdullah the Butcher and Bruiser, totally. and Bruiser Brody or even IWA in Japan. But like, for some reason, I always get more of a jackass vibe whenever I watch <laughs> like 2000s, you know, indies because I mean yeah obviously there's guys that were amazing wrestlers all around like a Danielson or a Styles, Daniels low-key those guys but a lot of it did feel like stuntmen and I wonder if you ever got the vibe of maybe there was a jackass influence like guys jumping <laughs> off roofs of houses oh, and totally. wrestling in the middle of nowhere like in this ring, like you know how CTW does their tournament of death. Yeah. Like, did you like? Has it ever crossed your mind that there like was some sort of crossover between? Yes. Hardcore. Yes. There's death a. Metal? Yeah. There's a there's a huge crossover in my mind, uh, not just on a personal level, but I think within within people who tend to like death matches. Obviously, not everyone is the same, and and not everyone is like into the sort of, uh, the same sort of things. But for the most part for the most part you can find like certain things that everybody has like a cultural touchstone around. But yes, um, gr- I grew up, uh, middle of fucking nowhere, Indiana, small town, Indiana. Uh, I was super into skateboarding and I still am to this day. Um, go support skate stand. They do a whole lot of good charity work for kids around the world via skateboarding. <laughs> little shout out right there. Um, uh, super into skateboarding. I was super into jackass when it came out. I couldn't see a lot of it when it came out. My parents were very, very um, overbearing Christian people and and prevented me from seeing a whole lot of things that became much more important to me later in life. But uh, if if I look at early 2000s independent wrestling and specifically like CCW and Deathmatches, there's so much crossover. And just like the sort of aesthetic and the type of music these people listen to and the general mindset of like the jackass crowd and the skateboarding crowd and like the music scene at the time and independent wrestling and specifically deathmatch wrestling yeah and 
nowadays, obviously, Jackass has died down. But in his heyday, oh, they're coming out coming out with that fourth movie, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Is it like I unabashedly they're not done yet? I, like I unabashedly like love Jackass. Like <laughs> I yes, I am, I'm a huge fan for better or for worse. Yeah. Yeah, like, you know, whether, you know, like, whatever that makes me, you know, I've been a fan of Jackass since I was a kid, but that's, like, the big thing I always took away whenever I saw, you know, random CZW highlights is Mm -hmm. people in the middle of fucking nowhere doing stupid shit. Totally. And it's not to take anything away from those guys, even though a lot of those guys, you know, didn't have basic training as something like... You, we've talked about before some of those guys are self-trained or just going mm-hmm. out there and doing things so a lot of it was like you know untrained stuntmen pretty much going out and doing whatever the fuck they wanted mm-hmm. and it's just something i always found interesting whenever i watched early 2000s czw and even you know now to an extent but one question is why did you gravitate specifically towards Deathmatch wrestling. Outside of, you know, your friends saying, oh yeah, we think CTW is cool. <laughs> but like, what made you, you know, now being older and having more wrestling knowledge under your belt? Like, you didn't just have your friends suggest CZW, yeah. watch it, and then like throw it away once you were done being friends with them. It's something that stuck with you. So why do you still, you know, gravitate towards Deathmatch wrestling? Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a lot of the same reasons that I love Things like horror movies or roller coasters or um, falling in love with shitty people. <laughs> it's, it's a sort of like it's a, it's a sort of controlled danger. Like when I watch when I watch death matches, I get the sense that these people are doing dangerous, violent things to each other because they are and because like they get hurt and and a lot of bad things happen in death matches. Um, but there's a there's a theatrical element to it where I know what I'm seeing is at least partially real, but it's also played up for an audience and it's played up for effect and there's a spectacle to it. Spectacle is a word I'm sure I'm going to return to a lot in this discussion and it's it's something very central to death matches. Um, that, that's sort of like violent, spectacular, um, theatrical, I don't know, just... It's fun, you know. Some like I, it's a creepy thing to say, and a lot of people are going to be turned off by it. But it's fun to see someone bleed sometimes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and that's that's not something that everyone's going to understand, and for good reason. But like, there's just a sort of um, there's just a sort of thrill you get from it. The first uh, the first pro wrestling show, like actual pro wrestling show, that wasn't like a backyard show in my hometown that was advertised as a pro wrestling show. The first pro wrestling show I ever watched was an insanity pro uh, that I ever attended. I'm sorry. was an insanity pro show headlined by John Moxley versus Drake Young or two people who were very central in my understanding of death matches and of wrestling in general. And afterwards in the back, John Moxley cuts a promo about him being a sick guy. And it's an incredible promo. I, yes, I, it I is. desperately, desperately urge everyone to go seek it out. If you've never seen it, but he's talking about how he gets a thrill from hearing like, the blood pour from his head and plink on the the mat and he he gets such a thrill from that sort of thing and i think that's what it's like it's it's the same reason i i ride huge roller coasters it's the same reason that i watch horror movies it's the same reason that i listen to like punk music it's 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 thrilling it's sort of sometimes it's sort of like uh, counterculture or subversive 
um, there's something there's something like indelibly I, I don't I don't know it's a, it's an intrinsic part of deathmatch wrestling is that you get there and if you get it you get it like if you if you if you go to a CZW show if you go to an IWA Mid South show if you go anywhere that does deathmatch wrestling and like you feel that roar of the crowd and you feel like the rush you get from seeing people do violent crazy things to each other it it is such a wonderful feeling if you don't get it you just don't get it and and that's nothing against you but you just don't get it now that you've like given like why you're into it do you think everyone that watches death matches views it on that level or do, or do you think that it's just a whole bunch of people like just, that just want to see people do stupid shit and that's it <laughs> I'm sure I mean there's definitely a portion of that that's in me as well I like to see people do dumb things to each other I like jackass obviously uh, I'm a backyard wrestler like I, I love that kind of shit um uh some of it's like the big personalities and I do love the big personalities as well like the kind of the kind of uh, cult of personality you get around guys like John Zandig or Nick Gage or at Sushi Onita, especially, um, people are drawn to that sort of thing. But for the most part, and I mean, again, people are different, and I can't necessarily say that I'm like, I'm, I'm uh, exactly like people in Philadelphia who are watching death matches, and I can't exactly say that I'm exactly like the people here in my hometown, my home state of Indiana, who are watching death matches. But I think for the most part, we're all drawn to the same sort of elements. Yeah. Um. You mentioned guys like uh, John Zandig, that's Sushi Onita, or we can throw another name in there that we've talked about before and why he's so popular, like like, like a Nick Gage, mm-hmm. about guys that, you know, have like this cult of personality, like they're enthralling people that seem to transcend mm-hmm. the deathmatch culture and become just icons in wrestling in general. And yeah, like you look at you look at something like Botchamania, like those people aren't doing the Jesus Zandig thing because they love death matches. It's because it's funny and it's because like there's something in there that draws them in. What do you what do you think, you know, makes guys like that stand out? Where they still <laughs> do the stupid shit that everyone else does. Uh-huh. But they're so enthralling as personalities, or to something that draws draws them in. Like for instance, we've talked about Nick Gage and I've made this comparison that Nick Gage is the Gucci Mane of professional wrestling. Yeah, and it's not a bad comparison. <laughs> like, you know, going in and out of jail, and when he's about to rise, like, and reach, like, the peak of his, like, stardom or what he can achieve in wrestling, he goes right back in, and he mm-hmm. has this cult following, you know, because of it, and some of it is people ironically liking him. But sure. Then there is some- that is a very important aspect of of, of death matches sometimes is that there is at least a little bit of irony in people liking some of this stuff because it's obviously like a, a lot of death matches are like objectively shitty, objectively bad wrestling. Uh, and there is, there is at least a little bit of ironic enjoyment of that sort of thing or the sort of enjoyment you get from watching a bad movie like the room or fateful findings. Um, but not all of it is ironic. Some of it is very earnest. But yeah. you were saying, Quentin. Yeah, like, I don't think all of it's ironic. I think that last year, when people were, like, telling Beyond to book Nick Gage 
versus mm-hmm. everybody or something like, like I was stuff, doing it yeah like stuff along those lines you know it's obviously a joke but Nick Gage has been like a CZW original since like 1999 <laughs> yep he was so, like 19 years old was like his first show yeah yeah he, like he one of the, he's one of those guys that legitimately like bleeds black and yellow yep. so if you're a CZ, CZW you know diehard fan Nick Gage is your guy but totally. even people that aren't in the death matches Nick Gage is their guy so what makes guys like a Gage, a Zandig, or an Onita like stand out so much? Um, one thing, and I'm not necessarily saying it's the most important thing, but one thing is definitely drugs. Those people are on some shit, and it, it definitely, <laughs> it definitely, it definitely changes like who they are as people and who they are as performers, especially because like someone like Gage, and even to a degree like Zandig, uh, they are very different people outside of the ring. Um, but you know, between those ropes, they are. There's something else. Uh, so part of part of it legitimately is like uh, drugs and things like that. Um, another another thing, like it's just sometimes people are just great performers. Like you you can't sometimes you can't get taught to act or you can't can't get taught to sing like past a certain threshold of just like acquiring skill. Sometimes it's just it's that heart in you. Like there's there's something something hidden away in you, some small element that is just so entrancing uh, that, that you, it just can't be taught and it's something like inherent in people. Um, and the third thing, you know, and this is the thing that I think uh, is the most important and I'm surprised that I haven't brought it up yet is the sense of danger. I, I brought up the controlled danger before, but like when you watch someone like Nick Gage or John Zandig or to some degree it's Sushi Onita or uh, brain damage is another good example. Uh, you watch these kind of guys and they feel like people who could kick your ass. They feel like people who could like burn down the whole world if they wanted to. And that's sort of, um, that's very scarce today in wrestling. Like you go back and you go back into the eighties, uh, and, and some part of this is due to kayfabe and the erosion of kayfabe over the years. But you go back to the eighties and you have guys like, uh, Bruiser Brody running around and causing people to like flee in mass numbers from yeah. wrestling shows, like causing causing riots and whatnot, uh, you look at that sort of like dangerous element where you look at a performer and you think, "Holy shit, this is real. This is capital R real. This isn't an act. This isn't some kayfabe. This is this is a monster of a human being doing terrible things to other human beings." Um, and and that element is is present, I think, in people like Nick Gage and John Zandig. You you see people who like not only have this big personality, this big character, but they feel so real. Like when I, when I watch, I, I don't know a whole lot about, a whole lot about Nikki, Nick Gage. I don't, I don't know a whole lot about what he is like outside of the ring, other than he's not so much what he is in the ring, but I watch him in the ring and no part of me believes that he isn't the man, as he says. <laughs> and when I see, when I see dozens and dozens and hundreds of people, some of them, my friends, uh, scream out, "Who's the man?" At shows like it, it, it's so real. There's such a there's such a real element to that. There's such a legitimacy to that, and I think that draws a lot of people in. And specifically, it's a huge part of why people like Nick Gage are over. That like legitimacy and like I guess like feeling of danger is a reason why I'm so into you know Puerto Rican wrestling from the totally 80s and 90s, and it's because like. 
Well, and some, to some extent, Lucha, because those areas, for those people, it still feels real. So they're, mm-hmm. like, reacting like, holy shit, like, they're killing our hometown babyface. Like, yeah. when Stan Hansen comes in to Puerto Rico and he has this amazing bloody feud with Carlos Colon, like, it's legitimately one of the bloodiest feuds ever. Yeah. And, you like, it's like, the heat on that match is like, man... Stan Hansen is coming in and really kicking our guy's ass. Or, like, it's, like, something along those lines. And maybe I haven't watched enough deathmatch wrestling to get that feel from it. Sure. Because in the 2000s and, you know, obviously up to now, people did get, you know, smarkier. And (laughs) there isn't, like, a real feeling of, oh, man, we really feel like this guy is in trouble. Yeah. But maybe if I watch more of it. I will get that kind of um, that sort of reaction. Yeah, I I I will say like uh, as I mentioned earlier, not all of deathmatch wrestling is great, and uh, and people <laughs> people who are big deathmatch wrestling fans understand that. Believe you me, I understand, uh, and I lament that so much of deathmatch wrestling is just bad, and I wish it was better, and I love it when it's better because when it is better and when it's at its best. Is like nothing else. That's that's an old CZW tagline, like nothing else, and that is there's no better way to describe it. the The best sort of death matches are just transcendent on yeah. some level. Um, but I think uh, I'll, I'll make a comparison to uh, a personal favorite wrestler of mine, CM Punk. Who, uh, if you're listening to this when this goes up, I'll be releasing an article on CM Punk within the next few days. So keep an keep an eye out for that. Um, I'll compare this to CM Punk in the summer of 2011 with the quote-unquote Summer of Punk 2 with the whole pipe bomb angle and him taking the WWE title from John Cena at Money in the Bank and leaving the company for like a week like two, <laughs> and then two returning weeks. Like two, in two weeks, weeks or some <laughs> shit. Um, but despite the fact that, you know, we were all, we were all quote-unquote smart fans and we were all in the know and, and uh, we understood like... We, we, we knew the score. That felt so goddamn real to people. Yeah. And specifically that Money in the Bank 2011 show where not only does CM Punk beat John Cena for the world title, uh, Daniel Bryan wins the Money in the Bank, which was a very surprising thing as well. Um, that felt like... It felt like anything could happen, and it did. And that is... that's In, in this age of, like, quote-unquote smarkiness and the erosion of kayfabe, in this age, that sort of like reality and that sort of feeling that you get from just really, really good theater, that's that's what it's like. Yeah. And you compare that sort of regular wrestling to deathmatch wrestling, not all of it's going to feel like that. And it kind of sucks when it doesn't. But when it does, it's just so good, dude. Another thing, going back to the realism or, or people buying in, to the struggle of deathmatch wrestlers is like the idea of this blue collar nature mm-hmm. surrounding the American deathmatch scene mm-hmm. or people, and, it, and it's scene. not so much present in in Japan, not quite as much. You can find it in small in small places, but it's much more prevalent within the United States and to some degree in in Mexico. Well, yeah, well, we're going to talk about the differences in deathmatches and the different regions in a little bit, but. I want you to speak on, like, the blue-collar aspect of 
you know, these deathmatch guys because it does seem like everyday people mm-hmm. doing, you know, extraordinary, extraordinarily stupid shit. But <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good way to put it. <laughs> but like, is like the blue collar everyman approach like something that people like are legitimately trying to give off, or is that just something that comes naturally within the genre? That's an interesting question, and I'm not sure if I'm necessarily fit to answer it, because as much as I'm a huge Deathmatch fan, as much as I've been backstage at CZW and IWA Mid-South shows, I'm not sure if I can necessarily answer that sort of thing, because it's like, you'd have to you'd have to ask the people who are doing it themselves. Um, but, uh, I will speak to the blue-collar nature of Deathmatch Wrestling. Um, you look at guys, uh, I mean, even... even John Zanig and Nick Gage, like people we've we've talked about already, who are like larger than life figures. You look at guys like the two of them, as well as Necro Butcher and Toby Klein, and like Danny Havoc, uh, Drake Younger, as I've mentioned before, John Moxley to some degree. You look at these sorts of guys, um, who are from either the trashy parts of big cities or from rural areas in like Iowa or Ohio, or uh, I mean, just parts of the Midwest, or the parts of like you know Pennsylvania and whatnot, you look at these kind of guys, uh, and they really do feel like dudes who are just doing things to get by. Uh, specifically Necro Butcher, who I wish I could speak a little more in depth about than I can. Um, and if you want to learn more about Necro Butcher, you should talk to the wonderful J.R. Goldberg on Twitter. Um, but you look at a guy like Necro Butcher who is kind of chubby, real pasty, has big wild hair and a beard and is like sort of balding in the front, um, doesn't wear shoes in the ring most of the time, just generally wrestles in like a tattered pair of jeans, uh, has a big old weed uh, marijuana leaf tattoo on his shoulder, um, just a good old boy from uh, rural West Virginia by way of Texas who goes out there and beats the shit out of other people for a living uh, and you look at that sort of thing and it, it really resonates with people I, as I mentioned before I'm from central Indiana and to see people who are just going out there and who sort of look like me and feel like me and act like me and are from areas that I am from it's, it's a really strong bond that you get with that sort of person who is sort of doing things to get by like I've, I've worked on pig farms shoveling shit to pay the bills and like you kind of just have to do that sometimes in life and when i see people who are like and part of it's a performance and it's you know they're choosing to do this but when you see people who are like bleeding all over the place to pay the bills like you get that that resonates with you and you see these people i'm I'm straight edge but i can understand why people drink um you see these people just like sitting down and having a beer after a show and you get that you understand where that comes from and that's that's a really important thing that isn't so much present in wrestling much anymore due to the homogenization of it and the fact that it's been, you know, uh, broadcast to a national and an international level. Um, but you find it sometimes in, like, Southern Indies wrestling, which is really great, like that that sort of, like, homegrown, blue-collar nature. Um, but it's it's an important part of deathmatch wrestling that I think a lot of people gloss over, and, it's, and for good reason, as it's not necessarily, like, easy to decipher on um, the surface level because when you look at it it's just like 
oh, these are just a bunch of hicks beating the shit out of each other, which is what they are, but there's there's more going on there, and I think it's something that a lot of people don't recognize, and I'd like to make sure that they do. Now that we're like past that, and I think you did a good job explaining why it is a big deal, even if people like don't notice notice them it immediately, is what exactly is the difference between, say, the United States deathmatch style and culture compared to Japan? I'm not expecting you to like give me a full breakdown of how you know Japanese culture <laughs> is, <laughs> but like yeah, no part part of it's part of it is just the the impenetrable the impenetrable nature of Japanese culture is like you don't. You don't fully understand what's going on there. There's a whole lot of like cultural things that just are lost in translation, as it were. Um, there's the biggest obvious difference is like the quote unquote quality of the wrestling. Uh, as I've spoken before in like the Slack chat of ours, um, a lot of people in American deathmatch wrestling aren't necessarily trained or aren't trained well or aren't trained by good trainers. Um, <laughs> and are sort of sloppy in the wrestling. They're not as polished as one might appreciate, and that is a huge reason why people don't like deathmatch wrestling, is because it doesn't... It's it's not as... Um, it's not as good. That's a really subjective like term. As, like, aesthetically pleasing in terms of, like, the movies yeah, and stuff? It's, yeah, it's not, it's, not as, it's not as polished, it's not as aesthetically pleasing as, as your ROH, as your PWG, as your WWE, even. Um, so that's... That's how American deathmatch wrestling is, but in Japan, it's a very much a different thing. Where um, most everyone who participates in deathmatches um, have come up in systems in which they were trained quite well by people who did know how to work. Obviously, at the beginning, that's not so much the case as you get guys like Matsunaga who are kind of sloppy. But um, a lot of deathmatch wrestling in Japan has come out of Big Japan, uh, which itself grew out of like FMW and whatnot, and those people were mostly for the most part fairly well trained and you can tell it in their wrestling is like uh, they do a lot more um spots and that are spots are a lot cleaner and it translates uh, a lot easier to an audience who is used to that sort of like spot based wrestling uh whereas american death matches are sort of like haphazardly thrown together and sort of aimless yeah um and that's that's obviously the biggest difference, and there's like smaller cultural things that I, I definitely can't go into because I'm not Japanese and I don't know a ton about Japanese culture. But that by itself is definitely the biggest indicator of difference between the two of them. I think another thing is that, and obviously there are a couple of guys in American deathmatch training or in that American deathmatch system that can be plucked and put into you know an ROH and still have a good match. Definitely, but I feel like in Japan there's more of those guys because, as you said, mm-hmm. there is like more in-depth training. Besides, you know, ha- like besides, like they have like basic training down. Like, say, like uh, a, a guy- big a big part of the reason too is because most Japanese deathmatch wrestlers also wrestle non-death matches. Yeah, that's, that's the only one I'm about to bring up. So, say, like yeah. guys like Asami Kodaka or a Yuko Miyamoto or a Jun Kasai or mm-hmm. a Masahashi Takeda. Like, and Takeda's had, like, a fantastic 2016, and it's mm-hmm. at a point where it's like, holy shit, why is this guy still doing death matches? And that's, like, an, that's like going to be a question, that's going to be a question later, just like, why? But, you know, Takeda is out here, like, having great matches with, you know, Isushi Aoki, <laughs> like, like yeah. grapple-based matches, and it's like... He's in MMA, like, he's doing fairly well in MMA. Like, yeah, so it's like, in Japan, it feels like these guys have the ability to branch out more, more than... 
American more than an American counterparts. A counterparts, mm-hmm. I get maybe in ring wise, they can branch out more because there's been American Deathmatch guys that are just enthralling personalities and just fantastic talkers. Mm-hmm. So say John Moxley, now Dean Ambrose, who is a guy that's instrumental in my wrestling fandom, but in a different way than yours, where I never watched like CZW and Death, but I would go on YouTube and I would watch John Moxley highlights of like him doing his infamous promos. And you already mentioned one, the I'm a really sick guy. Mm-hmm. Or the one where he's like walking down the street and pointing out different obstacles he had to get by on like on his way to go home. Yeah, like he's like instrumental to me because I've never seen someone that good as a talker playing that character. Yeah, and he's obviously like a big star WWE now, and his roots come from deathmatch wrestling. And even if he wasn't the biggest star in that genre, he had like a noticeable like you know flair to the way he talked that set him apart from everybody else yeah i mean he was uh, i i really like john a lot he is he is someone who uh, he was the first like real pro wrestler who wasn't a backyard wrestler he was the first real pro wrestler that i ever met he's someone who is very near and dear to my heart i mentioned before i'm going to be doing a a cm punk article and he's going to be playing a part in that as well um john's john's really great and i i think he is uh, in a lot of ways, sort of like this this Japanese deathmatch wrestler, um, not necessarily in the way he wrestles, because the way he wrestles, uh, especially these days, it's, the way it's, he it's, wrestles is still pretty damn sloppy. It's very sloppy. It's very haphazard. It's very um, it's very loose. It's very brawling base based. Um, he doesn't necessarily translate well to bright lights and big arenas and live television and i kind of wish he wasn't in that role as much as i love that he's being you you know you know what's funny you know what's funny about this is that while we just were talking about you know the blue collar aspect of deathmatch wrestling it's like he wasn't always like that wasn't who he was necessarily when he Mm -hmm. was on the indies but it's amplified you know, times 10 in the WWE where he really is this blue collar. Yeah. I do anything to survive character. Just and, a dirty guy. <laughs> yeah, it's like really interesting to me how that wasn't really who he was, even when he was in CZW, but the blue collarness, you know, just grew and grew and grew where he's this cagey street smart guy that works hard, you know, and he just does what he has to do to win. And, I mean, even, like, it's just a weird growth to see, like, for him. And obviously he has detractors because <laughs> he, he yeah. has, like, the sloppiness. But it's, I just find it fascinating to see, like, the growth of him and where he's, like, come from. And even the same growth in a guy like Sammy Callahan where, yeah. like, Callahan's, you know, wrestled in CZW this year. And since he's, you know gotten released from the WWE, but he hasn't done death matches. And yeah, I don't think he's done one yet, yeah. He hasn't done death matches. And he's kind of changed his style and he's out here having matches with Zack Saber Jr. that's <laughs> like Sammy like working over a limb really well. Or the match yeah. with Donovan Dijak from Beyond where he's working over Dijak's knee. Like Callahan's like sort of reinvented himself too, so even if we say Japanese guys have like you know a more of an ability to be put in different settings. There are guys like Callahan and Ambrose that have been able to 
I guess, adapt and become different than the guys that they sort of came up with. Yeah, they, they play to their strengths, they know what works, and they try to hit on what works and ignore what doesn't work, and they change it up when they need to. They're very smart guys. You wouldn't know that by looking at them, I think. Um, and I'm not necessarily sure if you know that by talking to them either, but they're very, they're very smart guys. They're very capable performers. And even if they don't necessarily, um, they don't necessarily show off that aspect of their wrestling to you based on, you know, sort of situations they're thrown into, I think that's a very apparent thing if you, if you really double down and you study their work. And I guess the last thing that, well, like I'll say before we actually get into the matches that we're going to talk about is <coughs> pardon me is there this kind of misconception that deathmatch wrestling helps hide the weakness of limited workers mm. do you think it's true do you think it's like a mixed bag like what do you think it is because the first match we're going to talk about does involve someone who <laughs> at this point in their life was a limited worker but yes and it's like, only become more so in the years since <laughs> but do you think um it's like true or do you think it's like a you know a mix of yes and no i it definitely is a mix of yes and no because there are times when um a performer's character and personality can really overshadow their weaker moments especially in a death match and there's times when the spectacle of the blood and the explosions and and going through tables and chairs and barbed wire and etc um and the whole brawling aspect and like being right there there in the middle of a crowd and like beating the shit out of somebody and throwing some really good punches um that sort of thing can definitely overshadow someone's weaknesses but at the same time due to at least in america due to the sort of haphazard nature of death matches and the over-reliance of just quote-unquote garbage wrestling and throwing each other through objects and hitting each other with objects it can also really highlight your weaknesses as a performer um but I think the best performers, for the most part, are able to do the former and not the latter. Um, for, for the most part. And it's it's not always, no one bats a thousand, or however it works in baseball, because I'm not a baseball fan. <laughs> um, no, one, no, one, no one hits 100% of their shots, but I think the best kind of workers get pretty close. And I alluded to it, but the first match we're going to talk about is between Terry Funk and Itsushi Onita. And this happened in 1993. And Terry Funk at this point had been wrestling for a very long time. And to be fair, so had Onita. Oh, God, yeah. To be fair, so had Onita. But this is the Onita, people don't, people really only know about Onita's deathmatch wrestling, but he wrestled as a junior in all japan for i think about 10 years before he got injured and had to retire and, and then, then came like, back he, from that retirement and did death matches and then people forget like you know he had a run run in memphis and stuff so it's like yep so that's like, where he got all this from you yeah. see so yeah, it's like yeah like the wackiness that people associate with fmw and you know Sachihiro takagi you know the owner of ddt has talked about mm-hmm. like how he was influenced by FMW and what they were doing, and Onita mm-hmm. is influenced by Memphis. So it's just like weird how that stuff works out. But yeah, so if you if you uh, if you want to blame somebody for death matches, blame Memphis and blame the Sheik and blame Abdullah uh, the Butcher. <laughs> Those are your three your three biggest culprits. <laughs> but Terry had wrestled up to this point for a very long time, and I've seen a lot of Terry. Thirty five, thirty years already. Yeah, yeah, like. And 
even say four years earlier, in like 1989, Terry was playing like this old man character kind of guy. Mm-hmm. But it was like amplified times ten once we get into this stage in his career where he's doing like legitimate death matches with the likes of Cactus Jack. And he eventually comes into Eastern Championship Wrestling or Extreme Championship Wrestling and becomes one of the most important figures there in ECW's history. But talk about like Terry Funk, like he gets older and the way he reinvents himself is to start doing death matches because he knows he can't do the things that he used to do. And that's like a good example of a guy that knows his limitations, but he adapts himself well, where he actually has like another fantastic run of his career doing Definitely. death match stuff. Yeah. He's someone who, um, who understood how to flip the switch and how to uh, see where things were going and to follow the tide as well as just, you know, change what he did in the ring to limit the sort of, um, toll he was taking on his body because you know like this is a, is a weird thing and maybe it only maybe it only happens to certain people but i know a lot of people who tell me that they get hurt much more in quote-unquote regular matches than in actual death matches because in death matches as long as you're doing everything right most of what you get are just superficial cuts yeah that might leave a little bit of a scar they're gonna bleed a little bit but for the most part that's all you're gonna get um so terry knew how to like limit the toll on his body and turn up his selling and be a little bit more wacky and take a couple superficial cuts and like become an absolute superstar in another genre of wrestling. So, I mean, good, good for him. Yeah. It's like a way that he extended his career even to this day, still wrestling. And it just blows my mind that a guy that, you know, that used to be, you know, a clean cut, good looking <laughs> man when he first started out and then he became a huge star in Japan you know, wrestling in all Japan, and he was like having like really great sound technical wrestling matches, even though there was still some brawling, some brawling in it. Sure, sure. But it's like Terry re- completely reinvented the way people look at him, like to the point where I think people view Terry Funk more as the crazy old man yeah. who like has you know. Well, do I remember like you remember the ECW one night stand where he fell through the barbed wire? 2006 and, with that tag match with Dreamer against like Edge and Foley, yeah. Yeah, and he has like that. And screaming, my eye, my, my eye. eye. And then yeah. he comes back out with tape <laughs> on his eye and yeah. a flaming and a flaming barbed wire baseball bat. Yeah, <laughs> crazy stuff. <laughs> like, I think people view Terry Funk more as that guy than, you know, this amazing mat wrestler, this amazing tag wrestler, this amazing baby face, this amazing and, heel. And part like, of it, part of it's because you know recent, that sort of thing happened yeah. in in places that they don't have a whole lot of access to. Like yeah. your average WWE fan is not going to be able to find '70s Amarillo tapes or '70s like All Japan tapes. They're going to know him from like, oh, he was he was in the Attitude Era and, he, and sort of this period of time afterwards where he just did a whole lot of crazy fights. Yeah, but. Is it, a, it, it is something interesting that a guy, for how long and expansive his career was, is at that period of time, is that what I think he is probably most known for. Mm-hmm. But back to the match itself, and this is a very infamous match. This is the barbed wire exploding ring match. I should. I feel like I need to explain what exactly that entails. <laughs> yes, I feel like you should. There's going to be a lot uh, of explaining. So- uh, this is a match from uh, the fourth, I believe, FMW anniversary show. It was called FMW Origin. It took place on May the 5th, 1993. If you want to track it down, you can find it pretty easily on YouTube. Um, and this is a 
no rope exploding barbed wire time bomb deathmatch. Yes. And that's a lot of crazy bullshit to unpack, so let's do it word by word. <laughs> First up, we've got no rope barbed wire. What that means is that the ring ropes, the three ring ropes that usually surround the ring, have been replaced with three strands of barbed wire, which is by itself very dangerous and very scary. <laughs> On top of that, attached to this barbed wire are small, basically what are firecrackers, like small little explosives that are very pressure sensitive and motion sensitive. And if you jostle them too much or if you run into them, they're going to explode. They're not going to kill you, but they're going to do some damage if they go off like right next to your body. And there's specifically a point in this match where Onita goes into them and there's this big burn mark on the back of the shoulder. Yeah. On top of that, <laughs> surrounding the ring are even bigger explosives like straight up bombs. Now they're not really bombs because they didn't explode the ring and kill these two men, but they're they're big fireworks that go off and they're set to a timer. Uh it was supposed to be a fifteen minute timer, but it actually goes off after like twelve minutes and forty five seconds or some shit. Sloppiness again is very inherent in Deathmatch Wrestling. But uh regardless of whether or not the match is over or whether or not the men are still in the ring, these explosives around the ring are set to explode and they're gonna go off. And so that's 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 the match that we've got here. Yeah, and initially when I'm watching it, it's I think like I, I guess like the way to put it is that I've always liked death like barbed wire stuff. Yeah, never. It's, it's a very it's a very easy thing for most people to get if they're not into death matches because yeah. it's like I don't want to touch that. Exactly. I, it's it's very sharp. It's very dangerous. It's going to cut me bad. It's an easy it's an easy psychological thing to understand. Yeah, I've always enjoyed watching people avoid and try to deal with the barbed wire because their reactions to it, you know, make sense. Like they're easy to grasp. Why? Mm-hmm. Like I don't want to touch that. The entire point of this match is that there's barbed wire surrounding this ring, and I'm going to do everything I possibly can not to touch it. Mm-hmm. And then the extra incentive, like you mentioned, of the exploding ropes and then the exploding ring is something interesting. But I didn't really think in the beginning that there was like this kind of urgency. Like at first, obviously Onita is the first one to get thrown into the ropes, and Onita sells like death mm-hmm. for a good portion of this match. But I didn't feel like there was a sense of urgency in this match until the final five minutes. And oh boy, <laughs> something in this final five. And before we get to the final five minutes, like we think about that because even though the entire point is that this ring is going to explode, it didn't really feel like there was urgency in the way they did it. Yeah, like, it's it's point. an interesting thing because uh, I think to my no- to my knowledge, this might have been the first exploding time bomb death match, or it was the second. It's one of those two, I believe. Um, And it is weird that two guys who are as smart as Funk and Onita didn't necessarily infuse their match with a sense of urgency before uh, what happens in the final five minutes happens. Um, And and it's kind of a a low point of the match, and it kind of sucks. But it's an odd odd artistic choice for them. Or maybe they just didn't think about it, because, you know, a lot of of people just wouldn't think about it. And And it's the kind of thing that's easy to critique here a full 23 years after the match happened. <laughs> yeah. But once we do get to the final five minutes, it's, I mean, I'd never saw the match before. I've heard stuff about it because it's obviously sure. a very infamous match. And the urgency there is what I think is, like, really mind-blowing. Like, these guys are like, 
I don't want to die. <laughs> like, it really does give that kind of vibe. Like, I'm going to do anything I can just not to die here. <laughs> and it's because of a specific reason in that uh, when they reach the final five minutes of this supposed 15-minute match, uh, an alarm starts to go off. Yeah. It starts to blare. And there's an immediate change. Onita, like, starts firing up and starts taking it to Funk and is like, oh, shit, I got to get out of here. The crowd changes. There's a big murmur in the crowd. And you see people, like, start to file out. Like, they're like, yeah. oh, the the ring is going to explode. I need to leave. <laughs> uh, the referee gets a little more frantic. The referee who is himself decked out in bomb gear, in bomb diffusal gear. <laughs> that was, that's, a wonder, that's a wonderful touch, by the way. Yeah, it's <laughs> Everything, it's so everything about this is like, and it sounds like I was, like, shitting on the match for, the, like, the first portion of it. For good reason. It's kind of sloppy and brawly. Once we, once we get to these final five minutes, it's like and we talk about spectacle when it comes to death matches. And this is full bone spectacle with uh-huh. you already mentioned referee and full out bomb, you know, detonation gear. And once the alarm starts going off and you already mentioned that like there's like a noticeable change in the crowd. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh fuck, oh man these guys need to hurry it up here. And it's just really insane to watch. And then once we do get to like, you know, the ending and we get back to crazy Terry Funk and Terry Funk lost the match. Mm-hmm. Well, it, he, he goes for the submission victory in these final five minutes. Yeah. He, he locks on the spinning toe hold on Anita and Anita uses that leverage to kick him off, push yeah. him into the ropes and explode the ropes and then when he stumbles back into the ring to DDT him for the win. Yeah. But even even though he's won the match, that alarm's still going off, and the ticker on the screen is still counting down. Yes, that's an important thing to keep in mind during this entire thing, is that there's still like a good two minutes yeah. left on his timer by the time Onita wins. And Funk loses, and instead of, yeah, I should probably get out this ring in the next two minutes because, fuck, it's going to explode. <laughs> Crazy Terry Funk decides that he wants to murder Onita and the referee. Yep. Like, he's, like, choking him with his wrist tape. And Onita, you know, he's not some punk. He's, like, he starts, like, kicking Funk's ass and power bombs him, like, three times and then, like, leaves him for dead. Yeah. And then there's, like, 15, no, 10 seconds left. <laughs> and Onita looks back at the ring. He's like, fuck, I need to get him out of there. And yeah, get- like, <laughs> keep going, keep going. Yeah, he, like... <laughs> And he looks back at the ring, he's like, fuck, I really need to get this guy out of there. I don't want him to die. Yeah. And then he, like, rushes back in. He starts slapping Terry Funk to wake him up. He's like, he's trying to, at first he's trying to, like, drag him. And he's like, yeah. come on, man, wake up, wake up, wake up. And then he realizes it's about to go off. And you can hear the crowd, like, oh, Freaking man. out. Yeah, like, freaking <laughs> out, like, shit, the ring's about to explode. Yeah. And then Onita just sacrifices his own body and covers Terry Funk, you know, who to, couldn't like, shield get him from the blast, yeah. Like, it's, that's like amazing stuff. Like it's, I'm almost like at a loss of words so for it. Crazy. It's in. I, there, there's going to be a lot of people who see that sort of thing or hear us talking about it and are like, "Why the fuck would he do that? Why? This is his opponent. This is someone he's been like beating the shit out for the last 15 minutes. Like they're in this big, uh, not necessarily a feud, but like they they and, don't and then, like and each then, other. And then I think it's not that even that they were like like had this match against each other is the fact that Funk was a dick afterwards. Yeah, like, that Funk, too. Yeah, like Funk is like attacking him after the match. Like, you know, Onita wins fair and square. We should get out this ring before it explodes. Trey Funk's like, nah, <laughs> fuck you. I'm gonna keep trying to hurt you because I'm angry that I lost. Yeah. And then Onita handles his business and like leaves him there. It's like, 
Ah, man, I can't leave them. And on the surface level, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think there's an element in deathmatch wrestling, and it happens in, in regular wrestling, too, where you see guys, like, have this big crazy match where they hurt each other a bunch and then, like, shake hands or hug afterwards. But specifically, um, it's an element in deathmatch wrestling that is very intrinsic and very important. And I think it can be best summed up by this Leo Tolstoy quote. And before I, before I actually get to the quote... I don't want to make it sound like I'm a big highfalutin college boy who can drop Leo Tolstoy quotes at the drop of a hat. <laughs> I only know this quote because I play a shit ton of Civilization V, and this quote is in that game. <laughs> but there's this Leo Tolstoy quote that I think sums this up pretty well, and it goes like this. You can love a person dear to you with a human love, but an enemy can only be loved with a divine love. And I, and I think that this sort of sums up this sort of feeling where, like, you bond to a person that you go through a trauma with like on a, on a real base level and you bond with the person who you beat the shit out of and who beats the shit out of you. You bond with someone who you bleed with like you, the, the sort of people who, uh, who in war you hear stories about like, um, on Christmas, like the two sides of a, two sides of a battlefield coming together to celebrate Christmas and, you know, have a day of peace together. There's a sort of camaraderie between enemies and between people who are also friends who are just having quote-unquote friendly death matches, uh, there's sort of a camaraderie between deathmatch wrestlers that is a whole lot stronger than in other genres of wrestling. And it's very apparent here with Onita sacrificing himself to try to shield Terry Funk from this explosion, which is a pretty big explosion. Yeah, and then the thing about the explosion is that when it happens, like, obviously there's smoke covering the ring, so it's like mystery mm-hmm. is like what happened to them at first. But then the best thing is, like, the crowd Ugh. is yeah. totally fucking silent. Yeah. There is no noise coming from this crowd at all. It's like, I can just, like, they didn't show any crowd shots, but, like, you can just imagine, like, mouth agape, like, yeah. holy fuck, what just happened? Are these two dead? And like, then, and then this, <laughs> oh, man, this is, I'm going to return to that word that I mentioned before, spectacle. An absolute fucking spectacle happens, where... There's the shot of the ring as the smoke is billowing all around and you can't see anything. You don't know if these two people are dead uh, and the crowd is super silent. Uh, I don't think they played it over the PA in the stadium, but you get it here on the video, the home video release where this guitar comes in with this absolutely oh sick riff and goes, <laughs> and, and starts playing for the next minute or so. As the, uh, as, the, as, as the smoke clears, <laughs> as the smoke clears, and as you see these two warriors like pick each other up onto their feet, and you see that they're alive, and there's this shot, there's this one shot, and it's it might be my favorite like shot, single frame in all of wrestling. Period. There's the shot of Onita and Funk holding each other up. Uh, they're in each other's arms, standing barely, barely on their feet, as the smoke billows around them, and they're looking at the crowd who is cheering them on as this guitar just wails, just totally shrieks. And it is it is such, such a goddamn spectacle. It is like nothing else. It's really fantastic stuff. Yeah, it's like something that even, like, it's not even a death match in that kind of way. Like, yeah. Like, it's not even, like, uber-violent. Obviously, there's blood, because there's barbed wire explode and exploding things. But it's not like they're, like, gouging each other with things. It's like not even that kind of ultra violence mm-hmm. that other matches that we'll talk about has. It was something that was based on drama. Mm-hmm. And drama is a great word for it, yeah. And like 
when I do the Art of Drama episode for the psych- for Psychology is Dead, Ooh. obviously a name that people always associate with drama. Like The three names I always mention are Kenta Kabashi, Akira Hakuto, and Shawn Michaels for like yep. the Masters of Drama and Wrestling. Yep. And you have to add Itsushi Onita to that list where it's like yeah. he made something that this like is so fucking ridiculous. And you know, everything in FMW had like this ridiculousness to it to an extent. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he made it so goddamn like easy to invest in and is so over the top, the ring is going to literally explode. <laughs> to, like just process that. Yeah. In fifteen minutes, or supposedly fifteen minutes, the ring is going to explode. In that these two guys are still in the ring. These two might be dead. Yeah. <laughs> and then just the shot of them walking to the back together. It's so it's so like moving. It really gets to like a real deep human level. Yes. Yeah, and it got over. Like I think a lot of people. Uh, one of the biggest complaints about deathmatch wrestling is that like all oh, these guys are killing each other for twenty bucks in front of like you know forty fans in the middle oh, of nowhere. Not FMW. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's you know that sort of thing is true to some degree. But in FMW, that FMW, shit was super FMW, over. FMW, they're selling at like fucking thirty thousand seat stadium. This so. was yeah. This was as uh, oh man, I'm gonna I have it written down here. This was at the uh, Kawasaki Stadium in Kawasaki. Oh Japan. my god, that's big, yeah, that's the one big baseball stadium. Yep. And this was this wasn't even the biggest FMW show they ever ran. This had forty thousand people at it, and yes. like the first the first opening seconds of the video of this match is the fans doing the wave. You can immediately get the sense that it's, this is a big crowd. It's amazing, really. Like, the fact that Onita, like, it wasn't even a cult following anymore. You know, once you get, like, 50,000 people in one mm-hmm. arena, that goes beyond cult following. Yeah, it's not, that's not a cult. That's a religion. That's, that a, like, an entire nation that you have. Like, yeah. people worshipping this product and following what you're doing. And Onita's one of those guys where you just have to give him his due. For mm-hmm. what he has done in wrestling, um, but I highly recommend checking that match out. Awesome, uh, for, you can find it real easily. Yeah. If you need help, just hit one of us up. Exactly. But the next question I have is going to lead into one of the more light guys in this like wrestling bubble, and it's this endearing quality that some deathmatch guys have, where you feel bad for them. So. Mm-hmm. Certain guys that fit this bill would be Cactus Jack and McFoley, where you just watch him go through so much punishment, and even as the heel, you feel bad for him. Yeah, he's and, just genuinely likable. He's sympathetic. Yeah. Yeah, and then, excuse me, and then the person that kind of is the heir to a throne to a lot of people is the man mentioned in the show earlier is Necro Butcher, mm-hmm. where like he's kind of the heir to Foley's throne in a lot of ways for people. And you mentioned, like, you know, he looks crazy. He's walking around barefoot, big <laughs> pot leaf tattoo on him. So it's like, what makes this guy so endearing and likable? And we're going to talk about it now when we talk about um, Necro Butcher versus Kobe, um, Toby Klein from um, IWA, um, King of the Deathmatch on um, 2004, before we talk about the actual match, CM Punk and Dave Prezak on commentary. <laughs> oh boy. Holy shit. Now, I like Dave Prezak in Ring of Honor. Yeah. 
But I've realized, and this is going, you know, this is like 12 <laughs> years before, you know, I have to deal with them on like AW DVDs. Sure. Where he's a little, uh, little, little different. <laughs> Holy fuck, he sucks. But, yeah, but even back then, you can see, like, Brazak, you know, doesn't give a fuck. It's like, Really interesting to see like how much he cares at Ring of Honor versus how much he cares everywhere else. IWA Mid South was this really strange phenomenon where like nobody was polished. Like even even guys like CM Punk and Chris Hero who were there were very early in their careers and weren't uh, quite as good as they would be later on. Despite the fact that they were having goddamn ninety minute matches <laughs> and going out there and like killing it every night. Um, uh, IWA Mid-South was a place where, like, nobody cared. Everything was sloppy. Everything was, like, haphazardly put together. The video quality wasn't great. The audio quality wasn't great. The match quality wasn't great. But, god damn, was it so much fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, and I certainly, like, until the um, last match I watched, which I'm going to let you guess which one that is when we, like, start going through the show, but I really, really enjoyed... Necro versus Klein here, like oh really? This was this was the one that I was most worried about because it's the sloppiest. It's the most brawling. That's based. why I love. The... <laughs> oh really? See, here's the thing. You know that I'm a lucha guy, and like I uh, always talk about how much I like true, lucha true. brawling. Yeah, and I love this match for that reason. It's a violent brawl. It's not like a match like we're gonna hit each other with all these things just because we're supposed to. Mm-hmm. It's like an actual brawl. Like yeah, not, it like feels not, like a fight because a lot of it is real. Like they're throwing, they're not totally shoot, but they're definitely not super worked either. They're throwing some real punches here. Yeah, like, and that's a, that's a common theme with Necro is that yes. his punches are probably like my favorite thing about him. Yep. Like, he just goes all out whenever he throws those things. You, like, even if it doesn't sound like, you know, that amazing on tape, when you hear the crowd react to a Necro Butcher yeah. punch, it's like, oh, fuck, he really laid into that guy. Yeah. It's 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 a sight to behold. He's got... They're not they're not as, like, polished, or they're not as uh, widely used as in someone like, say, Jerry the King Waller, but, like, they're definitely in that realm of, like, really effective punches. Yeah, and I guess I love this match a lot because it felt like a genuine brawl. And people like have this like misconception of death matches sometimes. That it's like almost always like, you know, that kind of like wild stuff, like brawling on the outside, mm-hmm. almost like people think it's second nature to it. But it's not. And when you see this where they're like as soon as like the bell rings or even before the bell rings, they're fighting mm-hmm. on the outside, throwing computer monitors at each other. Oh my god! See, it's 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 just shame. It's a shame that I chose this match and I chose it specifically for the CM Punk and Dave Brazak commentary because it sort of helps the match. Uh, but these two had a match the year before in the King of the Death matches in 2003, in which Toby Klein throws a VCR at Necro Butcher's head, and it's one of the scariest goddamn things I've ever seen in my they, life. They mentioned it on commentary, and I might need to watch that match. Yeah, yeah, you definitely should. It's only like seven minutes long too. It's really really nice and short and compact. You should definitely check it out. Yeah, but like I made this comparison. I'm not sure if you've watched um, any of the um, um, Mike Mendoza and El Cuervo versus um, 
La Revolution uh, matches from down in WWC. No, no, I haven't. I've heard so much about them, and I'm going to get around to them at some point. I love those. I, I love those them. matches, and the reason why I love them is like they're all in like you know this basketball gym, and they're <laughs> just going around it, beating the shit out of each other, throwing things at each other. Yeah, I love that kind of stuff. So it's not it's not it's not for everyone, but like it's a lot of fun for the people that it is for. Yeah, like. That's up this that. is this is exactly maybe not exactly but this is a lot like what people think garbage deathmatch wrestling is like. They're in this like little community center in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, and they're in front of maybe seventy five, a hundred people, and they're just hitting each other with shit and throwing each other through light tubes and doing big, crazy, sloppy stuff. But it's it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, and this like this match is like totally nonstop, and when we're getting to the end here. There's a ref bump. Um, mm-hmm. I think the ref gets bumped like into the corner. Yeah, and, Toby Klein is stuck in Necro Butcher's Asiatic spike, where he's like just jamming his thumb yeah. into the man's carotid artery. Uh, and Toby Klein backs Necro up into the corner to try to break him off, and they squish the referee in the process. I, I don't know why this didn't click for me until now, but this goes back to the McFoley comparison. Yep. With Butcher using, you know, yep. like a move that makes sense as like a legitimate finishing hole, but it like doesn't look like one. And yeah, then the it's way, super weird, but it, it like in theory it it would totally work. Yeah, and then like the same thing with the mandible claw that Foley used to use. Yeah. Like, man, they really have a lot of similarities that it's actually pretty, really do. It's, it's pretty insane to think about, but Maybe Mick Foley is a huge piehead and we've never known it all these years. <laughs> Maybe he's got a weed tattoo somewhere. I wouldn't be surprised to me. Some spy or some shit. <laughs> but after the ref bump, Klein low blows Butcher, um, rolls him up. That's not the end though. It's like a really good near fall. Um, do you mind? Like I remember like the last spot that happened, but can you like run down exactly what that finish was? Like it doesn't go on too much longer after that. After they're in this ring, surrounded, just surrounded, littered with. Uh, deathmatch plunder and after this near fall with the roll up Toby Klein just grabs a steel chair and just clobbers Necro over the head with it a couple times and sets it up you know sets it up like you would a steel chair and hits Necro with a death valley driver into it or through it rather uh, and that's what gets the the pinfall yeah another really good match I'm surprised how much I enjoyed it but and there's there's like there's weird parts of it too that are like Necro pulls out a Hurricane Rana at one point. Oh, yeah, I, forgot, I have that in my notes, and I forgot to say it. Like, it's just super weird. <laughs> yeah, like, he does a Hurricane Rana, and he does, like, a legit, like, you know, flip plancha to the outside. Yeah, from, from the uh, ring post. Yeah, like... Crazy. And then Prezak is like, what the fuck is going on? Like, <laughs> he's stealing all Matt Seidel's spots. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're making a good joke about it. Yeah, but this was a really wild match that I... I mean, on paper, like, looking at it, I didn't. I maybe thought this would be like the one I enjoyed the least. Yeah, but, I was scared about that. But I enjoyed this a lot because this was like appealed to the sensibilities of why I like lucha. <laughs> but yeah, like it's not. It's it's really not all that, uh, all that different from stuff like Canis Lupus versus Trauma Uno that just happened a couple weeks ago. That is like getting match of the year uh, ratings from people. Like yeah. it's not a whole lot different from that that sort of thing. And if you're into like lucha. You can find things in death matches that are very appealing to you, probably. There's, it's not going to be like cool flips and dives, and it's not going to be like maestro uh, technical work, but there's a lot of brawling, and it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And 
the one that I was really curious about, and like the one that you're going to need to do the most explaining. Yeah, is, I figured it was either this match or the Necro Butcher Toby Klein match that I was the most worried about. Yeah, and it's Danny Havoc versus Sammy Callahan. Oh, never mind. I thought you were going to go in the chronological order, but okay. Um, nah, what I'm Oh no, I, I'm I watched them out of order. So okay, it's like, yeah, but it's Danny Havoc versus Sammy Callahan, Cage of Death from December twelfth, two thousand nine, from CZW. Yep. Um, you describe this as your favorite Cage of Death match ever, from yes, your favorite, usually. from the best Cage of Death show, yes. and from your second favorite feud from CZW. Yep. Obviously, I'm no CZW history buff, so if you could explain <laughs> any of these things to me. That would be wonderful. Um, well, I call this the second best feud in CCW history uh, after my first favorite feud, which is Chris Hero versus Eddie Kingston, which uh, is something very near and dear to my heart. I love both of those men. I love that feud um, for very much the same sort of reasons that I love deathmatch wrestling. It's, it feels very real. And in the case of that feud, like a lot of it sort of was real. It sort of blended the lines between reality and kayfabe and there was a lot of like legitimate animosity between the two of them, and it, it translated into these big, crazy, wild, beating the shit out of each other matches that I just absolutely love. And this is not quite that. Danny Havoc versus Sammy Callahan. This is sort of a... Um, I would describe this as like a, a passing of the torch kind of feud, though neither one of these men passes the torch to each other. 2009 was a very awesome year for CZW, but it was a year of change. Uh, guys like Zandig uh, and Nate Hatred and Wife Beater and Justice Payne, all the forefathers were gone. Dudes like Nick Gage were still around and still kicking and doing well. Um, but Nick Gage would be arrested within the next couple of years and go to jail for five years. Uh, and this was a time of change in CZW in which guys like Drake Younger and Danny Havoc and Brain Damage and uh, Sammy Callahan and John Moxley sort of became the top dogs in the company, and this this feud in particular, I think, is the most um, is the most representative of that. This is Cage of Death eleven. If you look at Cage of Death uh, nine, it was this big like eight man tag match between a couple of the younger guys and like the old guard of CZW. Cage of Death 10 was this big like seven-man match between a bunch of young guys and John Zandig. And John Zandig just wins because fucking he's the boss and he's going to put himself <laughs> over. Oh my he's god, gonna, I, he's need gonna, like, that. I need to see he's John gonna, Zandig beat seven people. It's, oh my god, it's it's kind of it's kind of bad. Oh, he, I, like, oh really, no, I don't, I don't care about the match quite. <laughs> I just need to see John Zandig beat seven people. <laughs> he throws Devin Moore off of the top of the Cage of Death and retrieves like ten thousand dollars that he put up supposedly at the top of the, the top of the cage, and he throws Devin Moore like through the, all this glass and all these tables, and he does it in a really unsafe manner. And that's sort of a, that's a funny distinction to make in these sort of matches where like you can do these very unsafe spots in more of a safe way, but people like Zandig tend to not do them in a safe way. <laughs> um, but you look at like Cage of Death eight, nine, ten, like all those all those cages of death were headlined by like the old guard of CCW. And then you get to here at 11, and you have Sammy Callahan versus Danny Havoc. You have two, two dudes in their 20s who have been wrestling for about five years. I think Danny Havoc started in 2005, and Callahan would have been about 2004 or so. 
They're both young guys. They're both um, had just recently become champions in the Fed and were like really popular and getting over. And they had this huge bloody feud. Um, I'm not sure exactly how it started, but like it escalated in a big way to the point where after a ladder match, a really awesome ladder match called the Devil Wears Prada ladder match, because <laughs> they used um, they used stiletto shoes in the match, and there's like specifically this big um, there's this big board that is covered with stiletto shoes and women's high heels that they bump into, and it's like super dangerous. Uh, but after that match, uh, a couple months before this Cage of Death match. Sammy Callahan, the leader of the Switchblade conspiracy, takes his Switchblade and he kayfabe cuts Danny Havoc's wrist. Uh, uh, yeah. And, like, they rush him to the back and it's, like, this big scary thing. And, like, they have this huge blood feud with each other and it's really indicative of this changing of the guard here in CZW. And match quality-wise, it's it's definitely, like, my second favorite feud in CZW. And it headlined this very strong Cage of Death 11 show that I would definitely recommend to anyone who has even the slightest inclination towards CZW. The main thing to me about this match is out of all the ones that we watched, this felt the most spot heavy. And yes, this it, is extremely spot heavy. Yeah. So even but even if it even though it feels the most spot heavy, it does feel like a legitimate feud ender. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the last battle of Atlanta just went up on the WWE network. I still about, gotta see that. About two weeks ago. And when I watched it, and it's like a, you know, bloody cage match, and when it ended, I was like, kind of like feeling empty, like, well, that's how you end the feud? You know, obviously there's other things that go along with it, like context and things like that, that I don't share, obviously, because it's 33 years later, (laughs) but still, it's like, I just kind of like, felt empty for that being the end of a feud, or the Did you feel that here, with this match? No, actually. That's why I was saying, like, it felt like a legit, like, this is it. And that especially came with the finish where it's like, fuck, like, there's nothing else you could do. That's <laughs> yeah. it. It's a pretty like, crazy finish. <laughs> the one thing, like, I've always felt, like, in, like, the matches I've seen of Jimmy, ha- I mean, not Jimmy Havoc, we'll talk about him later, but, um, <laughs> Danny Havoc, <laughs> um, is that he seems like he's the most naturally gifted deathmatch guy I've mm-hmm. seen. Like, he's, like, not that he's, like, so naturally good at death matches and like kind of way, but he's like naturally great, like athletic. He's yes. a great bumper. Like he's like one of those guys where you could take him away from death match wrestling and have him not do any of that stuff ever. And it feels like he would have still been a great wrestler. Yeah. Like, and he, and he does branch out into that sometimes, not as much as like his contemporaries, like Drake Younger and Sammy Callahan and John Moxley. Which is a shame because I, he he might have, he probably was the most talented in the ring. I'm not sure if I'd agree with that, but like he's very talented. Like not like saying like he was straight up better than those guys, but just raw talent, yeah, like raw talent and potential. Like he had so much to offer that I think like if he was the guy getting booked, you know, (laughs) in PWG when they started booking Drake and when they started booking Sammy, like he could have fit right in. Mm-hmm. He's a very charismatic guy. He's a very likable dude. Uh, just like this good old boy from Iowa, uh, from rural Iowa, who listens to a lot of heavy metal and drinks a lot of beer. Um, he he bumps really well, as you said. He's not necessarily flippy, but like he he bumps like he's a flippy kind of guy. Uh, he he's I mean, he is very talented. Like I 
I would urge anyone who doesn't really like death matches to at least watch some Danny Havoc because I think he's a very he's a very like um, accessible person to get into. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was watching the Tournament of Death, you know, from this year. Like, mm-hmm. Tournament of Death eight. Yeah, from two thousand nine, and. I was giving you like thoughts while I watched it, and it's like, man, shit, man, this Danny Havoc guy is like really good. Like, why did like how come I have not like seen like him in other places? You can see why he was my favorite wrestler at one point. Yeah, I could like legit see it. Like, it's, he's an interesting guy where I think he had so much that he could have done, mm-hmm. but I mean, and it goes to that dedication that I think a lot of deathmatch guys have where. You don't do death matches unless you're like 100% committed, you know, to that genre of wrestling. I think. I mean, there's some guys that kind of like you know sprinkle it in, you know, like Jonathan Gresham winning the CZW mm, yes. title, and like he's you know obviously the odd man out in a guy in a match with Matt Tremont and Joe Gacy and Greg Excellent, but he's like doing it. You know, David Starr, you know, had like a brutal match with um, Dave Christ at Down with the Sickness. You know, David Starr doesn't do that stuff on a regular basis, like take skewers to the head and things like that. But he, like, kind of dabbles in it. But for guys that that's what they do, that's what they're known for. It's the bread and butter. Like, they're, like there's, like, kind of, like, this dedication to it where you kind of question why they still do it when they get to a certain point. Like, people, <laughs> que- like, people question, like, why does Asami Kadaka still do death matches? Why does Yuko yeah. Miyamoto still do them? To an extent, now is getting like, I've seen Matt Tremont have really good matches in non-deathmatch settings. So it's like, okay, why does he still do them? It's like this this dedication to this um, genre of wrestling that's like, you know, it can't be killed. It's the they're um, I'm not sure if I can speak so much about Kodaka and Miyamoto and Takeda and those kind of guys and their relationship with deathmatches growing up, but Havoc and Tremont as you mentioned, are two people who are very good examples of this sort of generation of deathmatch guys in the United States that sort of grew up watching this stuff and were big fans of it and wanted to do it because they loved it. And, and that, that's part of that dedication. And to some degree, guys get into deathmatches because it just it pays good. Like John Moxley has been very public about the fact that he started doing that um, Partially because he was drugged out of his mind and just was doing shit, but partially because, like, it pays better than regular matches do. And if you have to choose between getting paid $40 and getting paid more than $40, you're going to choose more than $40. Um, But there is is such a sense of dedication with a couple of these guys, with most of these guys, where it's like, it's something that they love, it's something that they vehemently defend, it's something that they that is very near and dear to their heart, whether whether it's because they grew up watching it or not. It's if you spend enough time in it, it you sort of buy into it. It's a really it's a cult like thing. Like I, I wrote a couple weeks ago about like the cult of Pentagon Junior. This is deathmatch wrestling is very much a cult. And this is like the third match that we're talking about, and even you know this early on, and we still have two to go. You can see like three different styles of mm-hmm. very different death match in just these three samples, and I think you did it on purpose. But <laughs> I tried, I tried. <laughs> yeah, but you know, from the drama that was created from Onita and Funk to the just 
flat-out violent brawl that was Klein versus Necro to, you know, this spot-based feud ender mm-hmm. on one of CZW's biggest shows of the year that has, like, higher stakes than, you know, a lot of these matches might have. It's, like, really distinct stuff. And sometimes with Lucha, people, like, generalize it based off of what they saw in, like, late 90s WCW. As, um, you know, they brought in all the guys from Mexico. They brought in Junior from Japan. And it was, like, you know, just guys doing flips and doing acrobatic things. But even in Lucha, which is, like, a really niche genre in itself. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it. There's the intricate mat work that you'll see from a Virus, a Blue Panther, or a Hechicero. There's the Lucha Extrema, or, you know, Mexico's equivalent to death matches that you'll yeah. see from a Pagano. There's the brawling stuff that you'll get from, like, a Kaifan, or a Rush, or a L.A. Park. There's, like, the dramatic, big, Apuestas match worker, like Atlantis, like he does it anniversario shows you know for the last couple of years with Ultimo mm-hmm. Guerrero and Sombra taking their mask and even in Lucha there's like this whole bunch of different sections and ways they can go that people may not fully realize and even someone that's ignorant even someone like me that's ignorant to death matches to some extent left these three matches like oh man like these were like totally different from each other Mm-hmm. There's there's different styles and there's different uh, situations that deathmatch wrestling finds itself in and like obviously not all of it's going to be like this and a lot of the worst deathmatches are very similar to each other and are very boring and shitty uh, but like but like any genre of wrestling the best stuff is going to be varied and it's going to be exciting and it's it's going to feel different from everything else it's it's very it is very similar to lucha libre yeah. in a lot of ways. The next match that we're talking about is, like, we're going to talk about the other Havoc that's on the show. It was kind of confusing doing it, like, taking it off. <laughs> it's like, it's like, at first I had, like, Callahan versus Havoc. Then I had Blank versus Havoc. It's, like, kind of confusing. But this next match is, like, something that I already watched, which I wasn't expecting this match to be on the show because I already watched it. And I'm, it's from a company that I enjoy very much and that I've enjoyed uh-huh. very much, like, for a while now, but it's progress, and it's from chapter 21. It's Jimmy Havoc versus Paul Robinson. And there's layers to this match that go beyond, obviously, these two doing violent, doing violent things to each other. There's two years' worth of backstory, mm-hmm. and, and actually a career's worth of backstory. If you want to bring up Jimmy Havoc's like, you know, entire career up to this point, or what his story pretty much Jimmy Havoc's story arc early on in progress was that he wanted to make a name for himself outside of being the deathmatch guy. Yeah. And he got put, and he eventually, you know, started doing them again, but it caused him to snap and beat the living shit out of Jim Smallman, one of the owners of progress. And it was a fantastic heel turn and angle. And it led to a two year title reign where Havoc and his stable called Regression, you know, opposite of Progress, <laughs> is, um, you know, they Good just... Name. Yeah, it's actually fantastic. I I mean, like, 
if Evolve ever did like one of those angles, like oh man, like it'd be like Devolve or something. Like, come on, that'd be great. <laughs> that'd be so goofy, but yeah, I'd love it. <laughs> yeah, but like Havoc and Regression, which featured Paul Robinson, who had turned on the eventual savior of progress, Will Ospreay, but mm-hmm. Havoc in his two-year reign of tyranny over the company is legitimately one of my favorite stories or maybe actually even just straight up my favorite story in wrestling like this like them in the last like six years yeah it's really great yes yeah, like really fantastic and it's like you know obviously progress has blown up into it being like a much bigger thing but that storyline I think is just absolutely fantastic and what happens here is that Havoc loses his title to Will Ospreay at the previous chapter and at the start of the second half of the show, he comes out demanding a number one contenders match. And Jim Smallman's like, well, I was expecting you to do that. So we already have weapons under the ring. And then he names his opponent to be Paul Robinson, who's in the ring with him. Mm-hmm. And early, like before the match really starts, like having is like telling Robinson to lay down. Robinson isn't biting. Well, not biting. It's not that he's not biting, but Smallman says if either of those two, like, you know, fix the match, that they're both fired, so they can't, you know, do that now. Yeah. And then before that, they're both getting the third guy. I forgot what his name was. Uh, Isaac Zercher? Yes, yes. The Omega Isaac Zercher. Yes, that's exactly what it is. And they're both trying to get, like, him to attack the other, and he eventually just walks out. And then these two just start beating the living shit out of each other. And yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting situation because it's not, uh, as you mentioned before, all these matches are sort of different. Um, like, the first match we had, like, this big drama between uh, Onida and Plunk, and then we had this huge wild brawl between Necro and Toby Klein, and we had this big feud ender with a lot of malice behind it with uh, Danny Havoc and Sammy Callahan. And now we have, like, we have two people, two weaselly, vile people who have scratched and clawed to get where they are in progress at this point and who have aligned themselves together to get what they want. And they are thrust into a situation in which it's kill or be killed. Yeah. And it's it's a very it's a very fun twist. Because it's really this is essentially a heel versus heel match. Exactly. And it comes across perfectly. And the thing about it being heel versus heel, and we'll get into it in a little bit, but Robinson is so great at being a dick mm-hmm. that you know he's so, and that goes back to his backyard wrestling days. He is such a cunt. <laughs> like, there's no other word for it. He's a fucking cunt. Like, it's, and it's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry about that word. That's a very disgusting word. It's, it's, a, str- it's very no, strong, like very harsh on no the ears. There's no other word for it. <laughs> yeah, but Robinson is so great at being a prick that mm-hmm. he makes Jimmy Havoc, who keep in mind. Yeah. Pretty much ruled the company with that iron dictator. fist for Just two years. Yeah. He was a dictator over progress for like two years. And Robinson is so good in his role that Jimmy Havoc is sympathetic. Like he's yeah. beating the living hell out of Jimmy Havoc, you know, who's supposed to be the deathmatch specialist. Who's supposed yep. to be like, he's like the longest reigning champ in progress history. No one's ever going to match it. He's done all these things. And then Robinson's just kicking his ass. And it was like, the crowd is like, okay. Jimmy's a dick, you know, but that's our <laughs> dick, you know, like, yeah, totally. Like that's our guy, you know, and we get that like in the aftermath where it's like that, like, thank you, Jimmy and doing the Jimmy fucking havoc champ. But it's like, you know, Jimmy's our guy. He might've done all this bad shit, but you know, 
that's our guy. It it, it kind of goes back to that Tolstoy quote: you you develop a bond with someone that you've been opposed to for so long that it just when it's all over, it there's there's something there, and you can't quite explain it, and you can't quite understand it if you don't feel it. Yeah, and then and like and it's funny that you mentioned this quote again because after Havoc loses, and we're going to talk more about the match, mm-hmm. but when Havoc loses, the guy that Havoc pretty much, you know, fucked up to start this whole angle, Jim Smallman, he helps, you know, the bloodied Jimmy Havoc to his feet. And it's not mm-hmm. like they he picks him up and then hugs him and yeah. does all that stuff. He just, like... There's no, there's no words to it. He just... He just, he like, apprehens- apprehensively puts his hand out, helps him up, and then leaves the ring. Like, that's there's it. A, like, yeah. Nothing extra. It's like... There's, there's an understanding between the two of them. It's now. like something so simple where any time else in wrestling, those two would have hugged and the guy yeah. would have raised the other one's hand. But it's like, look, I don't like you. But you're in need. You're wounded. You're bleeding in my ring. I'm gonna help you up. Yeah. And it's like something like that small, but knowing their history, it just means so much. It's it's a really fantastic cap to this whole Jimmy Havoc story. And as of this recording, he hasn't returned to progress in about a year now. Um, and it it was just such a wonderful end to this two year arc or more of of Jimmy Havoc, like rising to the top of progress by nefarious means and being just an absolute dickhead to Jim Smallman and the rest of the company. And it was, it, I'm not even sure if I can call it subtle because it's like right there playing his day, but it's so much more reserved than it would have been in another company. Yeah. And for that reason, it's, it feels really special. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think another thing about it was the callback to Jimmy's initial heel turn when Robinson beats him down with a chair. Mm-hmm. When Jimmy turned heel, he just annihilated his moment with a chair. Just like multiple chair shots to the back and all those things. And Robinson did the same, th- the same thing to him. Just like blasting him with a chair. And even though like in kayfabe is presented as a match that's like, you know, put together on the fly, even yeah. though they think that Havoc was going to come out anyway... It's like the fact that it's like so eerily similar to what Havoc ha- to what Havoc had done to other people, and that he's like almost in a way like repaying his sins for mm-hmm. what he's done to progress as a company. That right there in the electric ballroom, Paul Robinson is just like taking everything that he's done to people, and he just annihilates him like the rest of the people Havoc has dealt with. Yeah. But it, it's it's such a it's a really nice arc, and it's kind of a shame that they haven't um haven't really capitalized on Paul Robinson's like extra. I wouldn't even call it a heel turn because he was already a heel, but like this like added emphasis on him. Like other than that one match he had with Will Ospreay at Chapter Twenty Two, they haven't really really haven't continued that story too much, and it kind of bums me out. I mean, it bums me out in general the way they use him because like he hasn't been on a progress show since um the Thunder Bastard from this year. Yeah. It's so, yeah, he's so talented. He's, like, really goddamn good, like, you know. And I understand that maybe you don't want to have two heels mm-hmm. that are that good. Like, say, when Marty Skrull is your champ, you yeah. don't want to have another heel like that. Like, even when Jimmy Havoc was the champion, you know, Marty might have already been in the villain gimmick, but he wasn't, you know, 
on that level. He was kind of totally. like bubble, he was kind of like bubbling under. Like I'm not sure if you want Paul Robinson kind of like stealing Skrull's thunder. So I get it, but it's, it's certainly just, a concern. But it, yeah, like I wish I saw more of him. Yeah, I really wish that Robinson would like be, you know, not like in title contention, but like he deserves to at least be on these shows. Like the fact that he hasn't been on a show since chapter 27 is like just really sad to me, though. Yeah. Is like, he booked for Brixton? In, no, like, yeah, 11 no, days? Nope. Again, like legitimately has not been booked on a show. Well, on a like main show like he might have been like working he's been endeavors. he's been doing a couple yeah he's been doing a couple endeavor shows i know yeah. that yeah yeah like he had like a chain match with wild boar on one of the yep. endeavor shows but like the fact that he hasn't been on a main show like does no bum me out <laughs> but yeah that this was um one of those matches where i didn't i actually can't realize how much time had passed since this has happened until like have it posted about it on twitter Oh, yeah? Yeah, I did not realize, like, holy shit, it's been, like, almost an entire year since this happened. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I remember watching at the time, just, like, as someone that's not big into, you know, light tubes and all this, <laughs> you know, add-ons, it's like, you know, I enjoyed the hell out of this just because there was, like, an added story. And, I mean, we have to talk about, like, how, like, fucking, like, vicious and ruthless yeah. Robinson was. I mean, I talked about Havoc being sympathetic, but it's like, Robinson was like a fucking animal, just like... Straight tearing, up, yeah. He's just like yeah. tearing this guy apart, whose bread and butter is deathmatch, you know, matches, and he's like just destroying this guy. It's pretty insane to me. It's but, funny, It's funny though, like, as, as you say that you're not someone who's like super into light tubes and you're not already a huge fan of deathmatches, in a lot of ways, this was like the least deathmatchy of these matches. Yeah. But in another sense, it's easily, like, the most vicious just because of, like, the way that Robinson operates here. Yeah, I don't think anybody else that we've talked about so far was nearly as vicious and ruthless to another person. Like, in death matches, there's kind of, like, this misconception when it comes to, you know, the gouging and stuff. And it does happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, totally, you know, all the time. <laughs> yeah, but the gouging doesn't all, like, the action of it looks brutal, but the nature of how someone is doing it, like, doesn't always come across that way. When you a look at it, Paul, when you look at Paul Robinson's face, yeah, when you look at Paul Robinson's face, when he's, like, you know, putting a light tube into Jimmy Havoc's head, mm-hmm. he looks like he's actually trying to maim him. Yes. Like, it's actually pretty disgusting. It, 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 feels, it feels that way, but it's, like, not exactly that way. And yeah. there's... There's sometimes a misconception in, in death matches that like everything is real, which isn't yeah. the case. Uh, oftentimes, uh, barbed wire will be gimmicked, where like the points of the barbed wire will be clipped off, and as long as you don't zoom in too far with the camera, people aren't going to tell. Uh, there's a lot of staple guns in wrestling, and there's a staple gun in this match in particular, yeah. um, where really, unless you see something stapled to a person and hanging off their body there's a good 90% chance that that wasn't real. <laughs> and right. and there's stuff like um, when guys get cut open, they usually just blade, and then the person will take, like, some sharp object and, like, make it look like they're cutting into their forehead, but they're kind of just, like, resting it there and allowing the blood that's coming from that blade job to just bleed out. And that kind of thing happens here. And if you look closely, you can definitely tell that that's fake. Yeah. But you get caught up in this moment 
of Robinson being just vile, being animalistic, being this this brutal person to Jimmy Havoc, that you get caught up in the whole thing and you, you just you don't realize it. Yeah, like it, you know, if you're watching wrestling at this point, you know, in your life, like you know, if you've watched it long enough, you understand that some that this stuff is fake for the most part. Yeah, but sometimes people are just like so good at what they're doing that you just kind of forget. And it's like Robinson is just like his facial expressions is like the main thing here. Like he mm-hmm. looks like he's actually enjoying yeah. trying to carve this man. And he's he's gifted in the sense that he has a very unlikable face to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> he's like he is such a natural bad guy. Yeah, and another part here that I don't really think we talked about much is that how fast these two turned on each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's like insane to me how the stable called regression like dissolved like that quickly mm-hmm. like right before the crowd's eyes like it wasn't something that built up and bubbled over it's people that were a united front for all this time even a united front on you know previous chapter shows and right now at that very moment it was do or die and yep they just decided that they were going to kill each other they got backed into a corner and they had no other choice yes and storytelling wise, it was maybe my it was probably my favorite match of the bunch. Yeah, but it was just something I really enjoyed revisiting because I hadn't watched it in some months. And the last match we'll be talking about is something I've seen people call the best match in yeah Big Japan death match De- history. Death match history. And yeah. considering you know how big you know. Um, BJW's deathmatch history is because that's like what the promotion was founded on. No, that's a pretty lofty claim. Yep. But I think this match does deliver on that level. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I we'll talk about it, but um, <laughs> it's Abdullah Kobayashi, and what's the guy? What's the Sasaki dude's first name? Takashi. Takashi Sasaki. Like I, yes. compl- 100 forgot that. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, but um. You urged me to watch the entrance and I'll, entrances, and I'll mm-hmm. be honest with you, I don't think like the entrances really oh, mattered okay. much. But well, here's I'll, I'll maybe explain it, but continue okay. your thought. Yeah, I don't think it mattered much, but I still got the you know big fight feel intensity. Like you know mm-hmm. when guys have title matches or something, they come out, get head to head, hold the title over someone's head, whatever else, you know. So I think watching that, you know, I got like the big fight feel atmosphere from it. Sure. But I don't think it was like anything essential to it, though. Yeah, it's it's just um, to reiterate, this is Abdullah Kobayashi versus Takashi Sasaki from uh, March 31st, 2006 in Big Japan uh, in Cork and Hall, actually, which is yeah. easily, in my opinion, the best place in the world for professional wrestling. I'd agree. Um, <laughs> uh, but with these entrances, uh, Takashi Sasaki, the challenger for this Big Japan Deathmatch Heavyweight title, comes out first, and he's got this nice catchy song, and there's this nice little light show, and there's um, these interesting Dutch angles that they shoot the ring and his entrance from, and it's all sort of artistic, and Abdullah Kobayashi comes out, and he's got a nice catchy song. I, I don't remember the name of that. Do you happen to know that? God, I don't remember the name. Like, uh, I, I was do, do, to, do, 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 it's like one of those iconic yeah. like, 
like films like film songs like yeah when you like once you've heard it once like you automatically know what it is every time you hear it yeah and i'm so (laughs) mad at myself that i can't remember what movie it is from because it's probably like fucking tarantino like tarantino related and i'm gonna be sounds like it yeah it's probably like tarantino related i'm gonna be pissed at myself when i remember what it is later but but as it comes out to this music and and like there's this nice light show and the video production of it like the shots of how they film this thing are real nice and abby comes out and he's Abby, Abby is a very interesting character, and we will discuss that in a couple of minutes, I guess. <laughs> but uh, Abby comes out, and he's clearly very worried. He sees this man who is like all fired up and who's very talented, who's gunning for his title, and he's not sure if he's he's going to be able to like match up to him. And as you mentioned, like this really does have a nice big fight feel, and there's a big spectacle to it even before the bell rings. Um, and, and I urged you to watch the entrances just because I think... Yeah. The it doesn't it doesn't come across the same way as like say Onita versus Funk because that shit is bonkers. But this is um in the same kind of vein. This is a real spectacle, and it, and it feels bigger than it probably would be if you just watched Bell to Bell. Yeah. Um, going to the match itself. First thing I put down about first thing I put down about why I like this match. Um, they do like you know typical chain wrestling that you would see. Mm-hmm. And one spot is Sasaki kind of like does like the, you know, um, Kobayashi kind of like has like an arm ringer and Sasaki flips, you know, or kips up. And then he grabs a light tube and just cracks Kobayashi over the head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because like, why would you waste your time like doing a big fancy chain reversal when you can just like bash a dude in the head and get and free yourself you know and here's the thing like they keep doing like you know yeah. little chain wrestling and then every single time Sasaki's like no I'm gonna hit you in the fucking head what do you think I'm here for <laughs> it's sort of it's sort of Abby is a uh, it's an interesting character in that regard because his character is sort of based around that in in a subtle way he's um to describe him to the listeners he's named after Abdullah the Butcher because he looks a lot like Abdullah the Butcher he's a big pasty chunky um japanese dude bald guy kind of a funny looking face he, he comes uh, he comes out with the um yeah he comes thing out with that the, abby the, came out with it's not a turban it's there's not that's word. not a turban but it's like I forgot. yeah he's got he's got the pointed curly shoes like he he is essentially an abdullah the butcher tribute gimmick and he is um obviously due to his size and due to his mobility he's not the most polished worker in the world <laughs> and some of his moves don't come across as well as they could with other performers but he tries so goddamn hard, and he's got such heart and determination and fire and effort that, like, you get behind him because you're like, oh, man, this guy's, like, he's putting 110% into what he's doing. And so he comes into this match, like, trying to chain wrestle with Takashi Sasaki. He's like, oh, I'm going to out-wrestle you. And Sasaki's like, fuck that. Like, we're, we're here to do a death match. What do you do? What do you think we're here for? <laughs> <laughs> and then once, when, once Abby, like, realizes, like, that his chain wrestling is not going to work, he starts fleeing Sasaki with all of his body weight into the ropes and into the light tubes stuck into the ropes and just immediately goes to the deathmatch stuff and uh, the deathmatch stuff himself. Yeah, like, after the initial, you know, kind of like messing around with the grappling, and once he realized, like, yeah, I'm kind of like fucking up here, they, he does start throwing them into the ropes and does start doing what you would expect, you know. It's light tubes galore. All around yeah. the ring, light tons tubes. of light tubes. Yeah, this is a uh, this is a light tubes fluorescent light tubes and Kenzon match. And for those not aware, Kenzon are um, little metallic 
metallic <laughs> metallic <laughs> objects used in Japanese flower arrangement. They're about um, two or three inches in diameter, little squares or circles most of the time, little metal objects that have spikes protruding from them. You can think of them as like miniature beds of nails. Um, and they're used to, you know, like stick flowers in them so that they can look all pretty and stand up straight. But they've been used for the last decade or more in Japanese deathmatch wrestling, and that's sort of um, spread to the West in the last couple of years as well. And so those are our two primary weapons in this match. Yeah. One, another thing about this that I noticed off the jump is once this match does start to get, you know, a little bit more violent, and then Abby starts putting some offense together, one thing he does is he does, like, you know, a back suplex off of the apron. Oh, yeah. It's really brutal. <laughs> and they go to the floor. <laughs> this and... big, like, Kitakobashi <laughs> Noah 2004 back suplex off the apron that it's like, oh, that looked rough. <laughs> and then, like, it's like, and that, like, now that you bring it up, like, like let's talk about that. So, in that match that you were just talking about, when that happened, it's like, oh, fuck, business just picked up. Those two in just In the Noah died. match? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like, that's like a key spot in the match. But for these two, it's just like, they just did it. And it, it doesn't do it. matter because there's yeah. other shit that's like way worse that could happen to it's, you. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting thing. And this is sort of one of the reasons why people get turned off of deathmatch wrestling because... If you just glance at it, it's like, oh, none of this matters. Like, none of these spots matter. And there's some truth to that, to be sure. But part of it, I think, and maybe this is just a little bit of headcanon myself that <laughs> I've come up with to come to terms with this thing that I love being shitty. Um, uh, I think, obviously, you look at these guys, they bleed for a living. They get stuck with sharp objects for a living. They have to deal with fire and explosions and light tubes and yada yada uh, on a regular basis. I think you sort of... I think it's it's not too far-fetched to believe that these kind of people are a bit tougher yeah. than your regular run-of-the-mill wrestler. Exactly. And so it it doesn't make a lot of sense on paper, but like you can sort of feel it in a match like this why a big back suplex off the apron to the floor isn't like a huge match ender like it would be in another match because these guys are like doing much crazier shit on a much more uh, regular basis because yeah. I mean they're just they're tougher like that they're made of different stuff exactly so that's why I'm not really complaining about it since I know you know he was just trying to put offense together and that's just something sure. that happened so I'm not it's gonna... very silly though <laughs> yes yeah, it's like silly that it's like they just like there's no like tension to it. There's no drama. They just go out to the apron. Oh yeah, he yeah, just, just like he, he fucking... hits it and then he like goes into the crowd to find a table. Like it's there's nothing to it. <laughs> yeah, like I'm just like I'm not gonna complain about it though. You spoke to Kobayashi's like you know, kind of like wackiness in yeah. you know how he is. Um, two spots in particular. One that I think happened first is that he puts uh like little like glob of light tubes on to Sasaki's, you know, ball area, and he just stomps on it, like, you know, <laughs> just, like, super simple, you know, really to the point. Yeah. You get, the, you get that it's, you know, painful. You know, I enjoy that kind of stuff, where, like, it's not overly contrived. It's just, like, yeah, I sounded this Effective. guy's nuts, and there's glass there. That yeah, hurts. <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> um, and then another one, which is, you know, obviously a bit more silly, but he starts... Chew, he starts biting like like a light tube, and he starts oh, chewing man. the glass. Yeah, it's like really disgusting. <laughs> and, um, he spits the he spits glass that he's chewed up into Sasaki's <laughs> face. 
I don't I don't know how he does that because to my knowledge people don't make fake light tubes and I know that Abby has teeth still and he doesn't have like these horrible internal injuries due to eating glass but like I have absolutely no idea how he does that kind of shit and it's and it's there's something lovely about that in this day of like you know no kayfabe and everything is fake and smarkiness yada 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 it's it's really fantastic sometimes to see something that gets like a real guttural reaction from you and you don't know how they do it. Like I think of Marty Skrull's finger break spot where like he's not actually breaking guys fingers and he probably just snaps or something and that's how he does it. But it creates such a sound and such a reaction from you that you're like, that was real for a second. And I felt it. I felt it be real and I had a real reaction to it. And it's nice to see that in wrestling sometimes. Yeah, I mean, you bring up the Marty's girl finger snapping, and like that's like one of the things I always look forward to in Marty's matches, like just for that, like how the crowd reacts. Like they'll be like super hot, like they'll have like this yeah. crazy exchange and like a crazy sequence, and then Marty will just grab his hand, <laughs> spread, his, spread the fingers out, and then you just hear that popping sound, and then collectively so the crowd is like, "Oh God, what was that? <laughs> uh, just disgusting!" <laughs> like it's like. Super cool every time I watch him, though. Even mm-hmm. though Marty is one of the like more frustrating wrestlers for me to watch. Yeah, he's got some he's got some serious down points. Fun guy, though. Yeah. Um, you we mentioned the Kenzons, um, obviously being a big part of the match as weapons. Oh boy. Um, there's like you know brutal looking things that you know would you know look you know better if there wasn't as like more crazy stuff in it like Kobayashi taking a Kenzan and like you know kind of like swiping and punching Sasaki at the same time with it yeah like you know that should be you know more brutal and more of a high point but it's not and it's because um Kobayashi does like a over the back pile driver Uh, a beach break or uh, sort of a modified air raid crash yeah yeah in oh God. Sasaki's head, <laughs> a Kenzan is like, oh, like re- it's like super deep in his head, and I'm just like, yeah. Fuck. He um, there's this nice tight shot of his back, yeah. and at first when he's sitting up, he's uh, they've they've taken this bucket of Kenzan and spread it over the ring, like in one corner, like there's just this pile, this pile of Kenzan, these um spike dice as they're sometimes referred to in the West, um, and. Uh, Saki's trying to string together some offense and goes to give Kobayashi like a suplex or something and Kobayashi being a much bigger guy is just like fuck that and he picks him up in this beach break and he looks like he's going to do it into the light tubes at first and he's like oh no 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 siree <laughs> I'm going to go over here and do it onto these Kenzan and he does it onto the Kenzan and there's this nice tight shot at Sasaki's back as he sits up from the move and first you see two Kenzan stuck fairly deep into his shoulder. Yeah. You're like, ooh, that sucks. That's like, right like, in oh, yeah, like, yeah, all you see is that, and I was like, oh, man, it looks awful, because he took a bump, because he took a bump in them earlier, and, like, no, they didn't stick. Yeah, they didn't, they, like, sort of, like, maybe one or two of the little spikes or nails or whatever, like, stuck into him, but it fell out. Yeah. Like, it wasn't that deep. But he's sitting up from this, and he's got two in his shoulder, and you're like, ooh, that looks bad. And then it pans up to his head, and he's got two in his head, <laughs> and they're real deep, 
and like the like crowd, one, one the crowd is, reacts first. The crowd one is, like, like one is significantly deeper than the oh, other. It's so bad. Um, there's there's a shot after the match where you can see them briefly trying to pull it out, and he has such a painful look on his face. Oh, God. There's a really there's a really gross video on YouTube of Abdullah Kobayashi uh, trying to take one out of his head after a turn of death um, that got. CZW taken off of YouTube at one point actually because it was it was too gruesome oh. and they got reported. But Jeez. Sasaki's got these two guns on stuck in his head, and the crowd the crowd sees it first and starts screaming, and then the commentators see it and they start screaming. There's no reaction other than just ah, <laughs> <laughs> like it's it is such it is such a guttural real feeling of oh my god that is gross. And, like, you know, when you've seen, you know, violence in wrestling, because violence in wrestling isn't new, you've seen yeah. blood pouring <laughs> out of people's heads, you've seen, you know, carnage of people falling through tables and people bleed through their mouths and, you know, other, like, other stuff like that. But there are still things that get me. Yeah. And that's one of those <laughs> things where it's just, like, when I see that thing, and, like, these are, like, pretty goddamn long nails. It's... And, and they're like it's all the way down. Like I see no nail. All I see is the bottom portion of the Kenzon. It's thrust as far as it can be into its head. You know, you don't forget that. Nope. That's gonna that's gonna stick with you. You're gonna carry that weight. Yes, yeah, like pretty like gnarly to look at, but And it's not even the finish. And like understandably people would be like, Oh, that's that's stupid. That's a really huge spot. That should yeah. be the finish finish, but like it's only a, near, a big near fall, and it gets, like, a huge reaction from the crowd. And that's, like, one thing I wanted to talk about is um, the super convincing near falls. And yeah. that's one of them where it's just, like, I just see this thing stuck in this guy's head as far as it can go. That has to be the finish. But, yeah. no, it's not. And it was a really genuinely well-built title match. Like, it felt like yep. a title match. Obviously, there's, you know, hardcore... You know, activity is going on with the tables and chairs. Activities. And activities, yes. <laughs> you know, there's, you know, things like that going on with light tubes and tables and chairs and the Kenzon, as we mentioned. But it has like a, like, really well built, you know, pace and structure to it. Mm-hmm. Where it's not like they're like straight up brawling in a beginning. It's kind of like a build. And once we get like down to the final few minutes, it's like legitimately like really crazy near falls that you could bite on. Not because it's the thrilling. Sp- you buy be- into it. Not because the spot looks brutal. I mean, obviously that's a portion that plays into it, but because they built up to these moments so well mm-hmm. that, you know, you could buy it as a finish. Like say whenever um evil breaks out his um evil bomb or whenever Sami Zayn breaks out his blue thunder bomb or whenever like I'm like I'm not gonna go straight finish or spam. Because that happens in wrestling and people buy because that's a finisher. But when a move has like a reputation of being dangerous, it gets a reaction of the people. And, and it's not even it's not even that it's dangerous because you've seen it finish matches because yeah. odds are you you haven't seen it finish a match, yeah. but like it's it's known. Yeah. Like you see that move as a signature of his and then you're always gonna react to it. Like the perfect example is like Matt Hardy's side effect. Yep. And all of these like spots that they do, they're brutal looking. They look like they could legitimately finish a match, but them not finishing the match, I like actually like enhances the match for me because it's just like 
these two just keep on fighting through all of this, like, you know, hardship that they're putting their bodies through. Mm-hmm. And, you know, gotta keep in mind that Sasaki, like, wrestles the rest of this match with that fucking thing in his head. Yeah, there's, um, it's it's so gruesome to think that, like, he's got these things stuck in his head. And recently there was a, um, I, I made a trigger warning earlier, and if you are, uh, if you are someone who doesn't like sharp objects and specifically needles, you should stop listening for the next 30 seconds. But recently, uh, Ryo Ito, uh, Ryuji Ito, um, uh, wrestled a match in Big Japan in which he wrestled a good 10 minutes of it with a needle stuck through his cheek. And, like, uh, yeah, seen, that I've is seen, uh, crazy shit. Yeah, I've seen, like, this, like spots like that done before, like, you know, taking the syringe and going through someone's cheek, and that's never... Yeah. Never pleasant to look at. That's like another level above. You know what I mean? Like, there's things in rest. There's things in deathmatch wrestling that I'm like, ooh, that's that, that's uh, really rough to watch. The, 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 the main one that I always think about is um, John Moxley taking the skill uh, saw to his face, which was super fake, but like it comes across in a yeah, in a like very the way it looks way. is like. Yeah, I don't know how it managed to do this, but it looks like there's like blood flying from because like he does it already. Like, yeah, he had already like he had already been busted open. Yeah. He had already bladed and was just leaking blood pretty heavily. Like he was very yeah. busted open, and they just had this skill saw that was fake that had like a fake rubber end or whatever. Yeah, and because like it's it's moving so fast back and forth, like it really does look like it's carving into him and yeah, sending blood like, everywhere. It's just the it's a piece that, of work. You, just the way it looked, like, it looks, like, super real, honestly. <laughs> it's so scary. <laughs> yeah, like, you just see, like... And a selling of it, too? Like, it's 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 really well put together. Yeah, like, as soon like as soon as it starts, you just see, like, blood, like, kind of, like, just start to, like, fly off. Uh-huh. And it's one of the most insane things I've ever seen, even if, even if it's one of those things in death matches that's, like, kind of exaggerated. Yeah, totally. But the finish comes when Sasaki... He places, like, light tubes. Like, yeah, he places a bundle of, like, four or five of them. Yeah, in between um, Kobayashi's, like, you know, head and neck. And, you know, just delivers, like, a thunderous, like, roundhouse kick. And that's the end. And for some people, that would be annoying because there's, like, more crazy <laughs> things that happen besides that. But yeah. the reason why I loved it is it felt like a definitive nail in the coffin. Yeah. Like, yeah, they've been through so much, but, you know, even though these guys have this high threshold for pain, you know, eventually they still have to go down. And despite the fact that Sasaki did all the craziest stuff that he could possibly do, just going straight with the roundhouse kick, even though it's added on by the light tubes, you know, that gets the job done. And I can always admire that in wrestling. It's nice. It's nice sometimes when, like, and it happens a lot in Japanese wrestling. Like I can, I can point to a lot of all Japan matches back in the '90s that do this. Or uh, in a more recent example, Nakamura versus Ibushi from Wrestle Kingdom Nine did this, where like a guy kicks out of what should ostensibly be the finish, and like he has this big fiery kick out, and he's like, "No, I'm not dead yet." Yeah. But that's all he had in the tank, and all it takes is one more big shot from the other dude to put him down. And that's that's a neat finish where it's like. Abby stays strong, and he looks like a killer, despite the fact that he looks like a giant baby, literally. <laughs> <laughs> he looks strong and takes all this punishment and loses his title, but like he goes down valiantly, and it's a big struggle to put him down. Yeah, and this wasn't my favorite match, but 
I can see like this like being like a legitimate match of the year for people though. Mm-hmm. Like it's something that really is put together as well as any title match I've seen recently. And it's really, it's really good. It's it's not my favorite Japanese death match. It's not my favorite BJW death match, but like it is up there. It's some really good stuff. I mean, and curious. if you if you have uh, if you have trouble looking for it, uh, hit me up on Twitter and I will get it to you. <laughs> Out of curiosity, what what is your favorite BJW death match? Um, I I flirted with the idea of sending this one to you, but I think there's some parts of it that are a little more. I don't know. Um, a little more hard to grasp, and also the video quality that I found it in was very poor, and I didn't want to send it to you for that reason. Right. And it's a match in 2007. Uh, Takashi Sasaki wins the BJW Deathmatch Heavyweight title here, and he has a big long reign with it and does very well. Has a couple of the best death matches in Big Japan history. Um, but in 2007, he has a scaffold deathmatch with my favorite Japanese deathmatcher, Yuko Miyamoto. That is really fantastic. Um, I forget the date on it. I want to say it's in March, but I could be wrong on that. But they had two scaffold death matches together, one of which was in 2007, and is really spectacular. Okay, I might give that a watch because like after another, doing... I, I mentioned it to you before. Another good one is um, Junkasai and Ryuji Ito from I believe December of 2009. That actually was voted Tokyo Sports Match oh, of the Year. Oh, I oh, I watched it, but it's like super clipped though. Yeah, like I, I found it flipped. in a full version, and I can send it to you. Um, right. And I and I and I flirted also with the idea of using that match here, but uh, I, I don't know. Those yeah. are both real good. Yeah, that was like super clip though. It was like only like you know like seven minutes of it, and it was like enjoyable seven minutes. But it's just like it, it's hard to get a good grasp of a match if it's not in full. Exactly. And we covered all the matches, but the one thing that I have left to ask before we end the episode is the main criticism of deathmatch wrestling seems to be that this violence means nothing, that it's kind of mm-hmm. oversaturated, mm-hmm. that when you watch it, you know, what is the point? And it's something that I've like cited as a reason why I can't really get into it, because mm-hmm. like Abdullah the Butcher is a deathmatch wrestler. He is a very violent wrestler where all of his, you know, matches and feuds are based around, you know, stabbing people with forks, you know. (laughs) And the reason why I always viewed him differently or why I always viewed, like, a dump Matsumoto differently is because their violence was unique to whatever promotion they were in. Yes. As, like, when Abby goes to Puerto Rico or when Abby goes to World Class or when Abby goes, like, to anywhere else, Abby is, like the only person in your territory who's doing this. Or it's like when we go to All Japan Women, when Matsumoto was pretty much doing uh, um, Abdul the Butcher kind of ripoff with her Mm -hmm. doing, you know, Abby's techniques of, you know, hiding a fork and then when the referee sees it, like, oh, no, 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 what are you talking about? And then going back and, like, stabbing Chigusa Nagaya, like, you know, some of my favorite stuff ever is Matsumoto stabbing Chigusa Nagaya with a fork and then, well, not fork, scissors. Is um even worse. <laughs> yeah, stabbing her. Yeah, stabbing Chigusa Nagaya with scissors. Uh, that's freaky. And, that's freaky shit. <laughs> and um, like just Chigusa, who's like one of the best baby faces ever, yeah. just like selling and trying to crawl back up. And then like you know this wave of like you know Japanese like females like watching their idol you know 
like struggle to get up and they're trying to cheer her on. But then this like dastardly person just like keeps stabbing her. Yeah. It's like really insane. But it's because Dump is unique to the promotion promotion mm-hmm. where even though she's a heel and there's more heels in the company, what she's doing feels different. So what do you say to the, you know, idea that because deathmatch wrestling is a genre based on stupid shit (laughs) it's based on doing stupid things it's based on doing violent things like does that you know kind of like hurt the enjoyment once you've seen like enough of it like if you're not a diehard fan you know what incentive do you have to watch a deathmatch wrestling when everyone is stupid pretty much like no one um, feels uniquely stupid yeah uh, I'm I'm definitely of two minds of it because I definitely do understand the oversaturation point where um, uh, specifically when you were watching Tournament of Death 8 and I was talking this this tournament up to you I was like oh this is the best Tournament of Death they've ever done it's got a lot of real good matches it's a lot of fun, a lot of big moments um, you were expressing to me that it was like it, it's hard to get through it all because like at some point you've just seen so much blood and carnage and violence that it like you're not necessarily desensitized to it yet, but at at some point the same tricks don't work yeah. when they're just in quick succession right after the other. And that's definitely something that happens, uh, even to me sometimes. Here I am, like, almost a decade into being a huge fan of death matches and watching them constantly. That's, cer- that's certainly something that happens, and that's a struggle of, um, of a fed like CZW, where a lot of their stuff, especially in the early years, was death matches and um, there wasn't a ton of variety like CZW has had variety over the years especially with like high flying and junior heavyweight wrestling but you need more of it than I think what you get out of a fed like CZW for most of CZW's run Big Japan does a little a little bit better with like comedy matches with the Brahmins and with the strong division and with uh, a, a slew like a rotating door of um of freelance guys who come in uh, and they usually only have one or two death matches on a show and they're usually pretty low-key and fun. Um, it, it's it's a real struggle sometimes to get someone into deathmatch wrestling because like a lot of it feels so much the same and so and so oversaturated. But when you're in there, you get to see the differences, the small little in, in, uh, uh, intricacies of it and the small little details and the differences between matches and between performers and between situations that you don't necessarily get from being an outsider looking in. I compare it a lot to, um, let's say, uh, like heavy metal music. When I was a teenager, about the same time as I was getting into wrestling, I was also getting pretty heavily into heavy metal music. Uh, and a lot of like Christian heavy metal music, which is funny because uh, my parents were very heavily Christian and that weighed heavily on me for a very long time. Um, and I was watching a, like I bought a DVD of a live concert of my favorite, uh, heavy metal band at the time. And I was watching it in the living room and my dad comes in and he's like watching it with me a little bit. And at one point after they played three or four songs, he's just like, this is why I can't get into this kind of music. It all sounds the same. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, it's it, all these songs are so different. Like, they have different subject matter, and they have different tempo, and there's, like, different instrumentation, and they're playing different notes, and they have a different... Uh, all, all this, all these, like, things that I'm rattling off, and he just didn't get it. 
and understandably so because like on the surface level it doesn't it doesn't seem all that different when i when i'm trying to introduce someone to like horror punk or psychobilly and i'm like oh this is what the misfits sound like and this is what necromantics sound like people are like i don't hear a difference here and for good reason because like it doesn't seem like there is much of one to them and there are a lot of similar elements between those two bands and those two performances and those sets of songs but when you dive in a little more deeply and it takes time and it takes a careful eye and a careful ear and it just it really it takes just a lot of effort <laughs> and that effort isn't always going to be worth it but if you put in the time you can find a lot more there and there's a lot when you dive in that you can appreciate and that's why I wanted to do this podcast because like this is a thing that I love very much and I understand why it's off-putting to people and why it's disgusting to people because it is but there's a lot there that people don't recognize and for good reason I say that a lot here uh, there's a lot there that people don't recognize because they don't give it a chance and I think if you gave it a chance you might find something you enjoy a lot I resonate a lot with what you said about you know people like kind of like criticizing like a certain genre of music and saying mm-hmm. it, you know sounds the same you know obviously being I like pretty much all genres of music besides country but <laughs> you know country can, country can burn in hell but um being a big hip hop guy people that you know don't know you know how expansive hip hop sound is could turn on like will turn on the radio or something and say like you know all they do is talk about the same stuff. All the yeah. stuff sounds the same. And it's something, you know, a stereotype that I fight because, you know, I think there is, like, you know, a weird connotation to it that, you know, it goes with people not diving into the genre enough. And then there also is, you know, like, you know, weird, you know, racial connotations to it, which I won't yes. talk about, you know, the that's, also bothers. Yeah, that's, it has a, there's a lot to unpack in hip hop there, yeah. Yeah. It's like, and that's for a completely different, audio network but it's like stuff that bothers me on different levels that I can resonate with because if I was a heavy metal guy if I was a you know punk guy and someone came in saying that all these bands sound similar even though they have different guitar techniques (laughs) even though they play different notes even though you know the guitarist might shred differently you know that stuff would annoy me yeah and I can understand that you know kind of like defensiveness and it even happens with with people who are already fans of the thing like you're you're into trap hip-hop right i mean i like it it's not my favorite thing but i like it yeah okay well like i like i'm i'm very much a hip-hop fan myself and like you're aware of that but like i listen to such a different kind of hip-hop and like i can't get into trap music because on some level to me it's like i don't know if there's a whole lot here that i can dive into yeah but there clearly is and it's it's just I have to put that work in, and you know sometimes it's not worth it, and sometimes I don't want to put that work in. But like, it's not fair of me to write off an entire genre of a thing just because of my own ignorance. Yeah, there's something that like there is a common ground there between say death matches and say like you know trap hip hop, where, and I'll be the first to admit that I can't listen to like full you know trap albums. <laughs> the sure. same, like the same, like the same reason, you know, why I'll say, like, man, why don't you turn him into death? Like, you know, I yeah. get kind of numb to it. It's the same it's thing. It's really, it's really tough. Yeah, yeah, like I'll get numb to it. And there are, you know, similarities there. You know, you know, in trap, there's still, you know, guys that you know can weave in stories that can be mm-hmm. interesting, can do things like that. 
and that obviously is a thing that parallels well with deathmatch guys and the guys that shine in that genre too. So, I think like the biggest thing I've took away from the five matches that I watched, and I get left with a big appreciation of deathmatches of deathmatches as a genre. But it came away. I came away thinking like, man, if you really do dive into it, there's a lot to unpack, and. I think I used to be ignorant regarding the subject. I used to be a guy that, you know, death matches are shit and whatever, like, you know. But I left it like, man, there's so much there that's possible mm-hmm. that even if not everyone is doing it, even if not everyone is as unique or special, because not every, I mean, there's a whole bunch of wrestlers in the world. Not everyone, not <laughs> Too everyone, many. <laughs> not everyone is going to be unique. Not everyone is going to be great. Not everyone's going to be even decent. But when someone is good, but when someone is great, you know, they do stand out. And I think you picked a really good crop of matches that do stand out and show what deathmatch wrestling can be. When, I, I tried. Uh, I tried to do it. When, I, tried you know, to, I, I tried to uh, highlight different promotions in different regions of the world and different time periods as well. Uh, and, it's, and it's a shame we didn't get to talk about, we didn't get to see a Nick Gage match or a Jun Kasai match or a John Moxley match or a Thumbtack Jack match, but... I mean, you know, we only have so much time here. Yeah, and yeah, I really did enjoy this because I feel, you know, educated and <laughs> doing this because and you're laughing, but it's like, you know, the reason I did this is because I wanted to learn, really. Yeah, yeah. I you, didn't force this upon you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, when I did the first two Psychology is Dead, you know, I did it with Tim, and it's a series, you know, you know, we talk about a series of matches between two mm-hmm. guys that we both really enjoy. We both, you know, talk about a lot. When I did it with Dylan, it's something that we had both just watched recently. And mm-hmm. Dylan has like a real connection to the Southern indie scene mm-hmm. and the SEI in particular. The SEI is his baby. And for me, I don't have a connection to death matches. So you were kind of like, you know, my guide into what death matches can be in a way. So I do want to thank you for that. Well, I appreciate that. And I, um, I want to thank you for letting me come on. And I want to, if I'm going to leave everyone with one last sort of note, uh, I think it'll be this. Um, death matches, even if you're still listening to this, like almost two hours and 20 minutes in, <laughs> if you're, uh, if you've gone through this entire podcast and you've watched these five matches and like, you still don't have an appreciation for this thing. And you're still sort of disgusted by it. Like I understand not everyone's going to like this. It takes, it really does on some level take some sort of sadism and masochism from a person to get into death matches. And I, and I think maybe I'm speaking out of line here, but I think there's quite a crossover between people who are into BDSM and people who are into death matches <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Um, but, uh, all I ask, even if you're not into this or even if you are into this and you're trying to defend it to your friends who hate this style of wrestling that you care so much about, all I ask is that you just keep an open mind and that you give things a chance and you don't lambast other people for the things that they love when you don't like them. That's all I ask. Any plugs that you want to get out the way before we um, sign off? I, uh, I gave a couple plugs for a couple people. Uh, you can follow Jared Goldberg at Wrestling Bubble on Twitter. He's a great guy, and I definitely think you should look into him. Um, if you want to follow CZW, you can do that on Twitter at Combat Zone or something. Follow MLJ on Twitter. That's uh, T-H-E-E-M-I-L-J-A-Y. 
Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at NotBrockYonke. That's spelled N-O-T-B-R-O-C-K-J-A-H-N-K-E. Chances are you're listening to this on Wrestling With Words, hopefully uh, after the after the wonderful relaunch that just happened. Uh, you can check out my articles on Wrestling With Words. I have a running... Um, a running column called Brock's ha- Brock Hates Wrestling, and I should have a brand new uh, article going up around the time that this goes up as well. And you can listen to my podcast that I run with my friends Dan, Andrew, and sometimes Tim, uh, Sports Entertainment Shrinks, there on Wrestling with Words as well. And um, I just keep watching wrestling. That's what I say at the end of all of the Sports Entertainment Shrink podcasts. Like, there is nothing like it in the world, man. And yeah. there's... There's, there are so few things in the world, I think, that you can better spend your time on than professional wrestling. And I urge you to keep supporting it in any way that you can. And I want to thank you again for being on. And that'll wrap us up for this episode. I've already said before that this show runs on a whenever the fuck I feel like it you know, <laughs> schedule. Sure. Or when or when the person that you asked to come on finally gets around to getting <laughs> getting their shit together. Or that too. So I can't guarantee when the next episode of Psychology is Dead comes out. But I do plan on doing one within the next month or so. Um, uh, semi-new episode of Suprasa S. Lucha. The supersized edition where it went like three and a half hours. It was a great we, one. Where we talked about... Um, the Battle of Los Angeles, um, Triple Mania, the Anniversario, Candice Lupus versus Trauma. A lot to unpack in that episode, mm-hmm. but I think we did a good job, um, you know, taking care of everything that needed to be taken care of. So listen to that. Thank you for listening, and I hope you're here next time. <laughs>